I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Check engine light on? Take the guesswork out of your check engine light with O'Reilly Veriscan. It's free and provides a report with solutions based on over 650 million vehicle scans verified by ASE certified master technicians. And if you need help, we can recommend a shop for you. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 284. And today in the show, we are exploring how to prepare like a pro for the upcoming hunting season by hearing from expert DIY bow hunter Andy May on the archery scouting, stand site, and mental planning preparations he executes each summer. Okay, so real quick, before we get into this discussion, we do need to quickly thank Onyx for the support of this podcast. Onyx is the creator of the Onyx Hunt app, which is the mobile mapping tool I use for all of my hunting adventures. I use it all spring and summer as I scout and plan hunting locations, and then I'm using it all fall as I'm hunting and marking various locations, navigating private land and public land borders, all that kind of stuff. It's it's almost always in use for me, no matter what time of year. So highly recommend it. Head on over to the mobile app store of your choice or visit onxmaps.com to learn more. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx, and today I'm sitting here in my home office in person with my buddy Andy May. Andy, thanks for making the drive over here. Hey, no problem, man. Happy to do it. We're going to try to get out and shoot our bows and do some stuff like that, and it's just been raining and crappy as it's been almost for the last three months, so <laughs> figured this would be a good opportunity, though, to, to chat about some stuff. Um and I thought we could chat about some stuff that's particularly relevant to a little series that I've been running here in the podcast. And I think you've heard some of those episodes, right? Yeah. About kind of all the different habits or practices or routines or training regimens that are helping people achieve excellence in other fields and how those things might be able to apply to what we're doing here as hunters. So we study or we, we talk to a guy who's an Olympic free skier. We talk to an author who's studying these types of things across athletics and business and art and all sorts of things. Um, and we're going to continue to talk to some different people here in the coming weeks, but I thought today we might be able to do a really nice tie-in. So take those ideas, tie it into something that's super relevant to deer hunting, which is how do you take all those things and put them into action in the summer, right? It's June right now. We're in like that, at least for me, I don't know how it is for you, but I feel like when you hit to June, it's like the final countdown now leading up to hunting season. For some reason, those three months leading up to September seem like, okay, you better really get your stuff in order. It's, it's all about ramping up now towards fall. Do you feel like that? I don't have, like, like, there's like an added pressure or something. It's coming. It's here. You can just almost see hunting season 
ahead of you. Do you ever feel like that once June hits? Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, I try to, I try to stay uh, kind of prepared all year long, but I definitely seem to kind of ramp it up towards summer. And um, I guess I, I guess subconsciously, I'm trying to peak. You know, right when hunting season hits. Yep. You know, kind of with everything, with with archery, with my just overall preparation, um, you know, physical fitness, all that stuff. So I I do try to keep everything kind of um, where I want it year round, but I, I definitely do kind of feel that pressure building and that excitement, and it just I kind of focus on trying to peak everything and get everything dialed in. Yeah. You know, yeah. right in time. And you talk about the excitement. That is definitely a thing too. Sometimes I almost find that I love the anticipation of the months leading up to hunting season almost as much as I like the actual hunting season. Like I love getting out there and seeing the bucks in the bean fields. I love, you know, shooting out back with your buddies and I love all that, like checking the trail cameras and just all the excitement and like the, Oh, what might possibly happen this year? Like those feelings. Yeah. And that's some of my favorite stuff. Yeah. It's awesome. Like your, you know, your text, text messages with your close groups of friends yeah. is like increasing and we're talking about gear and trips and all that stuff. I mean, I love it. Yeah. You can't beat that. But but what you mentioned a second ago is why I thought you'd be the right guy to talk to about this because you mentioned that you're trying to be preparing and doing things all year, not just in the summer, but all year long. And, and of the people that I know that are close friends and also very, very successful hunters, you're one of the best that I've seen of, of really following through on the off-season stuff. From everything I've seen and heard from you, it seems like you are – quite busy all through the year. You, you've said numerous times in some of the past conversations we've had um, just off air and on the podcast about how much priority you put on things like scouting and that and how that's almost more important than the actual hunting sometimes. Um, so what I want to do here, which we've not done in the past, is do a really deep dive on what your summer looks like. Okay. Everything that's going on. So some of the routines, how you're how you're making archery practice part of your routine, how you're going about and doing all the different scouting work that you may or may not be doing this time of year, whatever final preparations you're doing, prepping locations, prepping access, I don't know, doing trail cameras. Um, I don't know a whole lot about what your summer situation looks like, so that's what I'm kind of curious to, to dive in and see what um, someone like you is doing in these final three months or so before the season. Um so maybe a good place to start is what you were just doing this past weekend because you were just at the Total Archer Challenge, right? Yep. And we, just before we start recording, you said that you actually look at Total Archer Challenge as something that you work towards. So it's not like you were just starting your preparation now for the hunting season. You've been actually preparing for Total Archer Challenge, which is then probably helping you prepare for hunting season three months from now. What What does that why do you look at TAC like that? What did the preparation look like? Why was that something that you thought you really wanted to work towards? Um, and maybe even, sorry to interrupt you, we should maybe also explain what Total Archer Challenge is for people that, that aren't familiar. Yeah, the Total Archer Challenge is um, an event that uh, it's held in several locations. I've only done the one in Michigan just because it's kind of close to home and, and easy for my friends and I to travel to. But um, it's an event that, is designed to kind of mimic um, more of, I guess, a, like an out west type hunting scenario. Not not necessarily um, every shot. There's plenty of um, you know shots that we would encounter, you know, here in the Midwest, that type of thing. But they make it challenging um, 
in the fact that, um, you know, the, the shots are typically longer distance. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of shots in that 40 to 60 yard range. And, you know, of those shots, you're a lot of times you're, you're trying to, you know, slip it through an, an area, you know, two, three inches wide downrange or in the brush where the shadows and the lighting is so bright, you really can't make out what you're, um, you know, what you're aiming at. And then some of the harder courses, they, it really incorporates some much longer shots with some steep, you know, uh, steep, um, declining shots and a lot of like elevation hiking up and down. So it's a, it's a cool event that kind of tests your, your shooting skill as well as physically. Um, you know, it can be somewhat physically demanding too. We shot three courses in a day and a half. And I think we, I can't remember exactly. I think uh, my buddy was tracking. I think we put on like 13 and a half miles. Nice. So, you know, it's, it's good. Um, you know, and it's out, you're out there in the heat and, you know, you're, you're, you're shooting down, down range. You got to take in the window account. Um, you know, the, you know, if the target's lower than where you're standing and, and, you know, cutting that range and all that stuff. So it's not one of those things you're going to, you know, pull your bow out of your bow case and, show up and do well and some people probably do that though don't they oh yeah yeah <laughs> maybe, maybe don't do well but they show up and just shoot right? yeah yeah i think a lot of people do that um but for me personally i just i kind of take it as uh just almost like a personal challenge that you know um i want to prepare for it and so that i'm shooting very well when i get there and, and my goal is to you know not miss any shots and i like you know want to put them all in the kill zone i'm not keeping score or anything i'm just you know aiming behind the shoulder like i would in a hunting scenario but that's like a goal of mine like i want to go there and do well as a challenge to myself not to outdo anybody else but just kind of prove to myself that um you know that i can do well there and make some of those challenging shots and and just to kind of improve that's the main thing i just i just want to constantly improve yeah and it's interesting you say that and it makes me think about and and this is probably something i need to tie to my archery practice because i tie this to like my physical fitness stuff i am not i'm just not personally good at being the person who's just gonna get up and get pumped to be working out every day just to do it i typically need to have some kind of goal i'm working towards like some kind of event or something that's like weighing on me so that i when i wake up in the morning and it's 5 30 in the morning and i don't want to get out of bed I think, oh, I don't want to go do my run. But then I remember, oh, you got that trip coming up. And if you don't stay to your what you said you're going to do with this running, trying to get in shape, you're going to get your butt kicked. You have to do it. Or I know many times I've been coming back the the final stretch of a run, and it's the last 100 yards, and I'm whooped. And I always try to sprint that last 100 yards, so just, just push it there at the end. And I've had many times, and I can always, I still, I always imagine the same scenario. It's at the last hundred yards. I'm so exhausted. I just want to stop. And then I have this little conversation in my head as I'm starting to sprint. And like, what are you going to happen when it's the last hundred yards and there's an elk at the top of the hill and you have to get there before he goes over the other side? And so I imagine trying to run up the hill with my bow and being there to get that elk before he goes over the side. And that's the kind of stuff that like help me push through or help me stick to the kinds of things I'm trying to do. Um, it kind of seems like Total Archer Challenge was a thing like that a little bit for you to to have that challenge, that goal to work towards, which then is helping you work towards larger goals. Yeah, totally. It's a. I looked at it as a you know a, a preparation 
you know, for hunting for sure. I'm going out west again this year, and, and you mentioned kind of your run and what you're thinking that last hundred yards. Well, I'm going on my first elk hunt. Um, so, and it's in a it's a in a part of Colorado that what I'm told is the rugged of the rugged. You know, um, a lot of people avoid it um, just because of it's it's really hard to navigate, but. Um, I've been doing the same, like I work out year round, but I've been changing my, my workouts and really focusing on that elk hunt coming up because I want to, I want to make sure that, um, you know, my elk muscles are, are, are good and that my endurance is good and, you know, my cardio and, and that I'm able to, you know, handle weight. So I, I've, I've changed my workout and been and gearing towards that because I feel the same way. I don't want that to be the limiting factor. Yeah. In fact, I want to make sure um, that I eliminate anything that could possibly uh, cause me not to have success. I want to eliminate as much of that as possible. Because um, there's what, already so many variables outside of our control, right? That's right. That's what I'm always trying to remind myself. There's so much that can go wrong just in nature that nature's going to throw at me. I better make sure I can control everything I can. Right? That's right. And I can handle if nature throws me something and something goes wrong, yeah. I can handle if that, if that bull's coming in and, you know, he gets downwind to me and, and he outsmarted me or whatever. I can handle that. I can't handle when the mistake falls on my shoulders. Yeah. That, that really hits hard for me. And it always has, like I take that stuff to heart. Uh, it drives me nuts. And I, I, I literally like, it makes me crazy and sick for, <laughs> for months. I mean, I will literally fester over that stuff <laughs> and then um i'll just make sure that 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 never happens again yeah. you know or, or do what i can to make sure that never happens again and that's i guess that's kind of how my preparation with hunting you know over the last 10 15 years has always been is just anything that i control or i that i can control and that i can improve like i just I'm motivated to to do that. I feel like I owe it to the animals, and it's just something. It's actually something that I just enjoy doing in general. So, um, just trying to improve all those areas to just eliminate mistakes. If I make a mistake, that's fine. It's a it, you use it as like a a learning tool, and that's how you improve. But you gotta you gotta identify it, admit that you made that mistake. And then do what you need to do to to fix it. Yeah. So let's pivot back to the archery side. Um, so t so Tarler Total Archery Challenge was this one of these different stepping stone challenges to work towards to prepare yourself for hunting season. You said you wanted to go into it and get a kill shot on every one of them. Did you? Yeah, I. Uh, th this was the actually the first year I've done it three years. This was the first year that I. Um, missed a target and it was um it was a, a a shot at a i think it was like a bedded sheep or something up an incline but about 40 yards down range you had to put it between two trees maybe three inches apart and half of my group stepped to the left where it was wide open and then half of the group stayed right where we were supposed to shoot and tried to snake it through yeah and uh I, I pinwheeled the little tree on the left. So <laughs> it, it would have went right into the vitals, but I didn't, I didn't make it through the little three inch gap. But other than that, yeah, I was very happy with the way I shot. Um, I mean, I was, I was executing my shot. Well, I felt steady. Um, I put a lot of shots in the 10 ring and, and pretty much all of them in the vitals. Um, so yeah, I was actually really, really pleased with the way 
uh, I shot, the way the, the bow performed, and you know, it was it was just a, a great time. So, what do you do to prepare for something like that? And I guess, well, answer me this: D- Did your preparation for TAC look dramatically different than what your preparation would look like leading into hunting season, or is it the same kind of thing? Just you're doing it earlier. Um, it's not dramatically different. I've kind of come into this um, this routine or this method that. I do to kind of prepare for a hunting season. Um, so I guess it hasn't, it wasn't that different than what I did for the total archery challenge. I think with the total archery challenge, what I, what I do is maybe pick up the long distance shooting just a little earlier. Cause I know I'm going to have some 80, 90, hundred plus yard shots. So, yeah. um, you know, once I get my bow shooting the way I wanted it, um, you know, I went through all, you know, the, the, the arrow building and the arrow configuration, the testing against different things. Once I was confident in that, then I got my mark, my sight marks, and then I just basically was shooting sixty to one hundred and thirty. Um, so, so walk us through what that actually looks like. So, how much time are you spending getting all that gear tuned up like that? Is that when does that begin? When are you doing that stuff? How? Talk, like t- literally talk us through that whole thing from the beginning. And then once that's done, what is, what's actually happening that you said you're shooting at 60 up to 130? Is that you're doing that every day? Is that you're doing once a week? Is that you're doing it twice a day? Uh, talk me through all oh, of that. Okay. So um, basically what, you know, how I start everything is like I, uh, I'm, I build my own arrow. So I have found uh, an arrow that works really good for my setup. Um, and that was through a lot of trial and error. So I order my shafts uncut, unfletched, nothing installed. I cut them myself because what I found is like, you know, you get them from, you know, some archery shops and stuff, you know, they, they have them pre-cut and they pre-flesh and you get 12 and you weigh them and you might get some that are, you know, four or five. I've had as much as 10 grains difference between hmm. the dozen. So that's just not, you know, that, that the way my mind works that that's not good enough (laughs) so i i order my shafts i cut them myself and then um the next thing i do is i square both ends so there's a g5 makes a little squaring device um just because the saw cuts doesn't mean it's perfectly square so if your knock or your insert um you know isn't sitting flush to the shaft that's gonna affect your impact so i make sure both ends are squared and then I go through with my scale and I weigh all the shafts, make sure they're all coming in, um, you know, exactly the same. And that's when I go and I install my um, my components. So I use like a 55 grain stainless steel insert. Um, I weigh all those individually. So just in case I get one that's 55 or 54, uh, you know, if I have a shaft that's one grain lighter, I'll put, you know, I'll, I'll mix and match to make sure the arrows are, as I'm building them, they're weighed the same. They're coming gotcha. in exactly the same. So I do the same with same thing with the knocks. So um, as you know, as I'm building these arrows, once I get them all built and I, they're all weighed the same with the knock, the shaft, the insert, and the point. And when are you doing this? Is this is this different times of year or every year? Do you say, all right, it's March. This is the time to get my arrows ready. Do you have any kind of like routine yearly when this happens or is it just as needed? Usually my, my mind focuses back to archery hardcore right when the season ends. Gotcha. So, um, I do a lot of like indoor stuff. Um, you know, I'll go down to like the local archery shop and I'm shooting and I'm, and I'm, 
that's this is kind of my time of year to like test things. So okay, I knew I know my setup last year worked great because I tested things and I went with the best setup I could. Now I'm trying to find can I improve it? What can I do to get better? So um, was there anything last year? And sorry, I keep interrupting you, but um, so looking back at last season when you got to the season being done, it's January or February, and you're starting to have this conversation with yourself this year, 2019. Mm-hmm. Was there something that you looked at from last year and said, I want to change this? Did you have something to tweak? Yeah. Yeah. And I'll actually get to that. Cool. All right. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> I should just shut up and let you talk. No, no that's okay. It, it's actually coming. So one, once I get those bear shafts made, then I, sh- then I go to paper with the bear shaft. Okay. And what I'm doing is I'm trying to get a, a perfectly centered, circle bullet hole with the bear shaft shot through a piece of paper that's stretched that's right this is assuming your bow is already tuned i'm not going to go through all that your your bow is tuned perfectly um your arrow spine matches your bow that's all a prerequisite that should all be done you know that should all be found out and done you know before this point so i shoot through paper and i make sure i'm getting that perfect bullet hole so i might shoot three and you know i'm adjust you know adjust the rest a little or adjust my uh uh, the spacers on on the Matthews bow there just to make sure I get perfect arrow flight. So then I'm getting bullet hole, bullet hole. Then I grab another shaft and I'm getting a slight left tear. Okay. So then what that means is, you know, every arrow's a little different, every knock's a little different. So I rotate it, shoot it again. They call that knock indexing. So I do that, rotate left, a quarter, a quarter until I get that perfect bullet hole. Kind of say you make me feel like such a schmuck. Well, <laughs> I don't do anything. That's okay. That's okay. And and I'm not saying you have to do this. I know a lot of guys that do nothing like this and kill plenty. So this is just this is just what I do. I'm not telling anyone else it's they need stuff, to do it. And I'm not even telling and I'm not even saying it's the right thing to do. It's just what I do. Yep. And what I do might change you know, from year to year, it's kind of morphed into, and it, if anything, it tends to get a little more involved, um, you know, but sometimes I have to tell myself, you know, enough is enough, you know, it's shooting good. Like you just run with yep. it. So, um, I knock index till I'm getting the, the bullet hole with every single shaft. If there's a shaft that I just can't get that bullet hole with, I usually keep that as like a practice shaft. So, okay. I got them all shooting perfect bullet hole. I mark on the top. Uh, like with a little Sharpie, a silver Sharpie, where that top is. So so I know when I fletch, I'm going to fletch it. So that's the top of the arrow because I know it's coming out of the bow perfectly straight. <laughs> so then I go and I fletch. Same thing, weighing each fletching, making sure they all, you know, all dozen, all two dozen arrows end up being exactly the same. And, you know, from there, that's when I go out and I, that's when I start, you know, sighting in my bow, getting my marks. And you asked me if I changed anything from last year. And I did. So a big thing, um, you know, in April, in May, I was testing Aeroflight with downrange grouping. So I forgot to bring it. I was going to bring it. But I have this big chart that I do where I shoot, you know, I'll shoot at 40. I'll shoot at 80. And what I'm doing is I'm shooting three arrow groups and I'm, I'm measuring the group. Okay. So I might do this bow to bow, like my Halon 32 versus my Traverse, just to see which one I'm shooting better. But what I was really focusing on, I, I, I did shoot those two bows against each other, but I was also shooting on three fletch versus a four fletch. Okay. So what I noticed with uh, my, my three, fletch, three fletch last year, I noticed my arrow flight was a little noisier than I wanted. And I was like, okay, I want, I want slightly quieter flight. It wasn't a big deal. I killed, you know, I killed some animals, 
but I think I can get better. I think I can get the arrow quieter downrange. So I went with a lower profile four fletch. So then I was using, um, I tested those against each other and over, I think I shot, I don't know, 80 groups, you know, marking, measuring the, the, the greatest distance between the two farthest arrows, uh, you know, in my group out of the three arrow group. And it was clear that for me, the four fletched was more accurate than the three. Now we're talking, let's say at 40 yards, say my group was, um, you know, uh, inch and a half with the four fletch and with the three fletch at uh, 1.67. I mean, we're talking splitting hairs here, yeah. right? Kind of seems silly, but to me, for me, it's just like, Hey, I improved. Yeah. Remember we, we talked about before you grab inches everywhere. Yeah. And for me, that's an inch. And it's also just kind of, um, helps increase my confidence. Like, right. Hey, I'm shooting, you know, 0. 0.1, <laughs> yeah. 0. 0.1 inch better. So I, I don't know, that. mentally it, it's, uh, I think it's good for you. Um, so then, then what I did is I, I started uh, using some slow motion video, and I was just I wanted to see the arrow flight. So now, like with your iPhone or some of these these high end cameras, you can, you know, put the camera right behind you, shoot that arrow flight, and in slow motion, actually see what your arrow is going doing downwind. And it was I don't know if you remember, but the spring was really windy. Yeah, I do. It was hard to find a calm day to shoot. So I was like, still feels like it now. I'm right. So windy here, my office. Yeah, I remember we were trying to get ready for total archery challenge to get our long range, you know, uh, uh, marks on, and it's like we couldn't get a day where it was calm. So with that slow motion photography or video, what I what I noticed was like, man, when you shoot in a crosswind, your arrow comes out of the bow. And then depending, you know, depending on, you know, where, where the wind's blowing or which direction your, your arrow kicks big time one way or another, depending. So if you're getting a right to left, your arrow will kick way knock left out there. <laughs> and I never realized, I, th I guess I kind of just assumed the arrow would just kind of drift. Yeah. Well, it doesn't, it pulls that back in and, and pulls the fletching. Cause there's more, that's right. To catch the air. Right. Yeah. And, and I figured it did that to a point, but I was I couldn't believe how dramatic it was. And I was like, wow. holy smokes, if I hit an animal at that distance where it's at mid kick, like where's my penetration? Yeah. That's so I reached out to, <laughs> I reached out to all these guys. I talked to Tim Gillingham, uh, you know, a bunch of pro shooters basically. Cause you know, these are the guys I feel like think like me. Sure. You know what I mean? Like, um, as far as I, I guess I prepare a lot like a target shooter, yep. um, but it just gives me confidence in the deer woods. So, Got to talking about that, um, and uh, one guy mentioned, you know, you, you know, check check the way of the natural spin of your arrow coming out of the shaft um, as a bear shaft. So what you do is you mark the top of your arrow, you know, shoot at you know three feet, and then look in the target and see where that mark on the top of the arrow is. It to the left, to the right. So for mine, my arrow naturally spins without any fletching to the left. I was fletching to the right. A lot of guys flush to the right, not saying you need to switch to the left, but what, what that does in, in, in it's been verified in like super slow-mo, uh, video, your arrow that wants to go left will actually come out of the bow going left. And then when you got that right, uh, that like that right helical, it'll go back to the right. Okay. So you're, you're actually getting a, a reverse right? And it, and it happens pretty quick. Now there's been world record world record shooters that shoot with a right fletch, which I'm sure with our, I think it's more of like a right hand thing or the way your, your, your string is twisted, 
But there's been world records set with guys shooting the opposite of that. Sure. So what I found was, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, the, the theory was I'm going to, I was getting some sort of knuckleball. I was trying to minimize that kick. Yep. I wanted to get the arrow spinning hard and fast. That makes sense. So more of like a, I think like a, a football spiral, right? Yep. A football spiral kind of stabilizes in the wind and it kind of stays tight. And I figured too, after talking with Tim, like, you know, if I can get that arrow spinning, even if it does kick, you can't get rid of that kick in the crosswind, but it will, because it's spinning, it'll, it'll go in line quicker. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to verify it. So I fleshed up, you know, four fletch with the, uh, with the left helical, four fletch with the right helical. And then I did the same video testing. And so I was shooting multiple arrows downrange with the same wind, you know, enough to, that I felt it made a difference. But what I found was when I fletched with the left, because my arrow naturally wanted to go there, I wasn't getting that knuckleball downrange. So that the kick was left and it and it brought back in line quicker. Hmm. So and it was very noticeable on video. Now it might be five feet, it might be ten feet. It's kind of hard to tell, you know, when it's downrange. But it was happening faster because I well, was getting that that harder spin quicker. It didn't have to reverse. Yeah. Now the way that, to, in my mind, the way that translates into hunting is penetration is all about getting the back end of your arrow in line with the front end of your arrow, right? Yep. That's that's what you want. It doesn't matter how heavy your arrow is. If you're if you're coming in and you got wonky arrow flight and your point hits, you know, to the right, and your knocks to the left, that's going to eat up your penetration. Yeah. You know, you can get really good penetration even with a light arrow if everything is in line and that that force of the arrow is coming right through the back end. So, to me, that was an improvement that I made. Yeah. You know, and substantial enough that I switched everything to um, a four fletch with a left helical and then how did that translate downrange? Well, I started shooting, you know, once I did start getting some calmer weather, I started stretching it out and I noticed that my group started sucking in even more. So wow. I think I was getting less wind drift now. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm real, because I've been doing this for a few years, I know what I was shooting last year at 80 at hundred with the three fletch, a little bit higher profile vein. And now, you know, I was able to compare those numbers on that sheet with my grouping with the four fletch with the left helical. So, and, and, it, and it shrunk. So, uh-huh. again, minimal, that's at long distance at 20, 30 yards. You know, the average guy, you know, is not going to see a big difference. I'm not even going to see a big difference at 20 or 30 yards. But to me, it's an improvement. Yeah. And and I, just, I don't know. I just, all year long, like when it's not hunting season – I'm in, what can I improve to increase my success in the woods through archery, through staying in shape, through eating healthier, through gear, you know, new gear, uh, switching out gear, gear modifications, anything like that to kind of make my system and my, um, make my system more, uh, effective and conducive to, you know, helping me achieve success. But as far as like the archery thing, like when I look at a lot of my friends and some guys that are just even just acquaintances, there's a couple things I think stand out like as to why maybe they're not having the success that they want. And one of them by far is, is just your shooting on animals. Yeah. And I think it's something that is just, you know, everybody knows it's important, but it's just not prioritized high enough. 
Yep. It's just not. Um, and you know, guys are like, well, you know, I could put a, you know, in a softball size at 30 yards or a baseball size. I mean, that, to me, that's, that's not even close to being as precise as I want to be in the yeah. air woods. Now, would I be happy with a baseball size at, at 30 yards, you know, with a 160 inch buck and a crosswind while I'm, while I'm, you know, angling down out of, you know, uh, a tree saddle or something like that. Yeah. But that's why you try to, why I try to be so precise in the off season and get that pinpoint accuracy. So when I do get those challenging shots, I know I'm going to be off. My form's off. You've got the wind going, adrenaline, your muscles are more tense. I know my shot's not going to be perfect. This episode is brought to you in part by O'Reilly Auto Parts, who are in the business of keeping your car on the road and also keeping you happy. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. I use the O'Reilly by me. It's right in downtown where I live. And the team there is super knowledgeable. When you got questions, they're happy to help you out. It's a great store to go into. The team at O'Reilly Auto Parts, they can test your battery for free in or out of your car. And don't ignore your check engine light. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today, a free diagnostic service exclusively at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Need your windshield wipers replaced? Brake light fixed? Quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop to get some help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in the store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'Reilly Auto, O-R-E-I-L-L-Y, O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Perfect. But because uh, my setup and everything is so precise and the muscle memory that I built all year, my miss is going to be less. Yeah. And an inch or two inches at 30 yards on a big whitetail, especially if he's alert, especially if he drops, you know, drops on the shot, that that could result in getting an animal that you wouldn't have. Yep. So again, it's just grabbing inches everywhere that you know are gonna kind of help you succeed in the deer woods. So I'm just kind of always looking for those little edges and angles. All right. So first, want to thank our friends at Vortex Optics. As I've been mentioning over the last handful of weeks, I've been using a number of the different products over the last year now. And right about now, it's June, I'm going to be busting out the spotting scope to start doing some of my long-distance observation for whitetails out in these bean fields that are just starting to come up. This is my favorite things to do last year. Um, there's a bean field across the road from my house, and you see lots of deer out there. And so last year, I got the Vortex Viper HD spotting scope, and I set it up on my front porch, and I got a phone scope for it. So you can attach your phone to the spotting scope, and then 
see through it and record through it. And it was just so much fun to have a spotting scope set up there to be able to see these bucks up close, to get a little bit of cell phone video. Um, just a lot of fun, not to mention if you've got somewhere you can hunt where you can do this kind of thing, scout from a long distance, you can learn a lot too. Especially in the summer, at least getting an inventory of the bucks available, man, a high-quality spotting scope is a great tool. I had great results with the Viper HD, and then I also used the Razor HD on my Mexican coos deer hunt and really enjoyed using that scope as well. So definitely think those are options worth checking out, and you can learn more at vortexoptics.com. Yeah, so you talked about like prioritization. This is a conversation that me and Dan had a few weeks ago because we were talking about how it's just like life feels like it's crazy. We both have, he's got like seven kids, I've got one, and just seems like you're running around like crazy. There's no time for anything, business pulling you this way, family pulling you that way. Um, it's really easy to come up with excuses for why you couldn't shoot your bow or why you didn't get your exercise in for the day or whatever. So on the archery side of things, how do you fit it into your life? Because I know you've got a whole lot going on. You're really busy too. How do you make this archery practice a part of your life? How often does that happen? What does that look like in your daily or weekly routine or whatever it might be? Yeah. In the winter time, when I really start hitting it hard, um, I'm, I'm kind of, I keep things indoors. So I might, go down to the archery shop at lunch and shoot. Um, you know, it's usually too cold to shoot outside like in the morning or anything, but I might go down there at my lunch or right after work or in my basement, I have about 14 yards I can set up. So I have a bad bag target down there. And I, what I do during that time frame is I'm just working on repetition. I'm working on shot execution, um, increasing maybe my pin float, you know, I'll watch the pin on the target and see what it's doing. And then I'll adjust my bow setup or stabilization, depending on what that's doing. That's a big one. We can talk about that in a few too. But, um, so during those months I'm shooting, you know, anywhere from four to six days a week, but it might be a very short session or it might be an hour. It just depends. Um, as things get nicer outside, you know, I, I have, like I said, I have the bag target in the basement. I got a couple uh, hay bales and a 3d target behind the house. Um, and then we go to, I go to my buddy, our buddy Tom's out there and, yeah. and Leslie that has, you know, the big hundred yard range there. So, I mean, I'm shooting almost every day, but what I'll do is I'll get up early for work. Um, usually that's my gym time, but sometimes I'll, I'll get up early. Like if it's a, you know, say I go to the gym five days a week or something, you know, on those other days I'll get up early and, go outside and shoot before work. You know, it gets light earlier, so I yep. can get a, I can get a good hour in before I need to be to work. So, or it might be right after work, or it might be that last 30 minutes of day, daylight after, you know, everybody's in, kind of ready for bed, and, you know, it's 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 8.45, and you still got 30 minutes to fling yep. a few arrows. So I, I try to fit something in almost every day. I'm not perfect. I don't get it every day. But, you know, I'd say I'm 100% five days a week doing something. And I try to mix in, you know, a handful of arrows sessions, just try to make everything perfect, five perfect shots with some more longer sessions. And those are the ones where I might be trying to find my marks or I might be testing things against each other. Um, so that's kind of year round. I love archery. I've told you this. I love archery um, nearly as much as hunting. I, I really do enjoy shooting. Um, so, I mean, it's not work for me. It's not hard. And I, I do prioritize it, but it's something that I like. It's almost like a, 
like a stress reliever, like meditation time yeah. for me too. I've heard a lot of people say that. I mean, there's a certain level of Zen that is required with archery. Like you have to be fully consumed in the moment by it. And mm-hmm. it keeps your mind off everything else, I think. Yeah. There's, some, there's something really, um, I don't know the right way to describe it. I don't know if it's powerful or restorative or something, but when you're able to do something that fully consumes you and you're able to lose sight of everything else for half hour or an hour or something, whether it be like archery or another thing for me is like fly fishing. When I'm fly fishing, like I'm so in the moment with every little thing. All of a sudden, four hours pass. I'm like, whoa. And like you come out of that like really refreshed in a certain way. Yeah. So I get that. Um, yeah, I totally get that too with, with, with archery. It's one of the only times I can sit there and do something and whatever stresses at home or at work or, you know, behind me, I just, it's like, it disappears. You know, but then, you know, usually I get a text of someone complaining about something and it's brought right back to (laughs) reality. But, but yeah, that's one of the only things that, you know, even when I'm hunting, like I'll be sitting there and I'll sometimes think about that stuff. But with Archer, I don't. It's funny. You you mentioned the phone. I've, I've actually just been thinking about this very thing over the last couple of weeks as I've tried to get better with my archery stuff going on. And I've started to try to take advantage of that like Zen quality and allowing myself the space to do that by leaving my phone. So I'm actually purposely leaving my phone in the barn so that I don't get that distraction. Cause I, I'm like saying to myself, I need this like half hour with nothing else, no thoughts, no, nothing. So I'll leave the phone, put on silence. So I can't hear it. And then I get out back behind the house and, and do my shooting. And I found more and more like I'm becoming more and more aware of what like a ball and chain my phone is. Oh yeah. And how like addicted I am to like checking it for no reason at all. And like, I don't know, more and more I'm finding like that I need to just keep it away from me to really have the space and like presence of mind to be the best father I can be or the best shooter I can be or the best writer or whatever it is I'm working on. I'm finding more and more, you just got to put on silent, put it away for a couple hours. Yeah. Um, that's totally not here or there. But uh, Well, no, I, I agree. It, you know, I find myself too getting a little too attached to that thing sometimes, sometimes like it won't even buzz and I'll still look at it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's almost like a habit, but there's a funny quick story. I was up North a few years ago and we were, uh, canoeing on the, or kayaking on the pine river, which is one of Michigan's fastest rivers. Hmm. And, um, you know, I'm pretty experienced kayaker, so it wasn't that big a deal, but I opened my dry box. We were coming around this corner. There was this big, cool dune. I was like, oh man, what a neat picture. So I get my phone out and I snap a picture. Well, this river's moving fast and it starts sucking me into this like outside turn. And there's all these like, uh, pine trees that with like overhanging branches that were like sticking out into the river. And I was like, oh crap, you know, trying to get everything back in the dry box real quick. And I shut it, but I didn't lock it. Oh, and I, I got sucked under the the bank there and all those branches like kind of hit me in the face and I, I oh, leaned geez. away, which is not, you're supposed to lean towards it. I leaned away, dumped the kayak, lost my oars, lost my phone, lost my camera, oh, gone. Man. But I was up, up North for the next, I don't know, four or five days. And it was funny. Like I was bummed about the phone, but like, it was such a relief or, or um, not a relief. It felt so good not to have the phone. Like I yeah. felt completely fine in fact i felt better without it yep you know i didn't worry about anything else i just had fun i enjoyed you know doing what you're doing i wasn't i wasn't sour for a minute other than that 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 initial thought of losing my phone it was like it felt really good Yep. so i've been trying to do that to set my phone down and try to get away from it and it's a 
it's a uh, it definitely can suck you in. Yeah, I'm thinking about doing something like that during hunting season because I've got a weird thing. A lot of people are on their phones while they're hunting, I, and I I do that too. When you get you know nothing's going on for a handful for however long, you pull up your phone and look at Instagram or something. Now I feel a certain obligation to have my phone because a lot of like my work is like supposed to be documenting my hunts and stuff. So there's a need to have my phone for that. But I think this year I want to try to implement some kind of mandatory like phone away time for like a majority of my hunt. So maybe I'm going to, I haven't quite thought this through, but you know, okay. The first 10 minutes when I get there, I can do a bunch of documentation and then maybe like one other time in the middle of the hunt, I'll do a bunch of stuff. Otherwise I'm going to put my phone like in a different pocket in my backpack where I can't easily get it. So just like, I don't do like the impulse grab and looks throughout the hunt. I think that would just, I think probably would lead to a more enjoyable experience and, and better hunt. So you're not as distracted and stuff, mm-hmm. but we're way off topic. What I was going to ask you about <laughs> next was, so you talked about these two different kinds of practice sessions. You talked about like the five perfect arrows and they talked about the longer hour long. Um, talk to me about what you're actually doing during that time period. Cause I think a, a lot of times when we think about getting our practice in, we'll just, I don't know, just people just go shoot for however much time they have and then they go back and they're not really thinking about what, what they're doing. Um, but a lot of studies have shown, and even we had this conversation with Brad Stolberg, um, the author of a book called Peak Performance, and he had uh, a section within that book where they talked about there's this concept that was popularized um, by Malcolm Gladwell in a book a long time ago called this 10,000 hours principle. Have you ever heard about that? Mm-hmm. Basically, the gist is that Research has supposedly shown that it requires something like 10,000 hours of practice to become an expert or to become elite in some kind of field. Um, but the key thing there that was often not mentioned within that but was tied to the original study was that it's not just any kind of practice. It's what they call deliberate practice. And it's a really, really big difference between just going out there and doing something versus this deliberate practice and, and, and how they describe deliberate practice was something that was very, um, very thoughtful of what you're doing and why you're doing it and working towards some specific goal or some specific thing you're trying to work on. So, you know, if, if you're a basketball player, just going out there and shooting hoops isn't deliberate practice. That's maybe just a little bit of practice. Deliberate practice might be going into it and saying, okay, for the next half hour, I'm going to focus specifically on my free throw form and really focus on getting a good follow through. And then they hammer that home for a half hour. Hour, that kind of stuff. So do you, is your practice deliberate in some kind of way? Um, or what, what does that look like for you? Yeah, I call it practicing with, practicing with a purpose. So I just, um, I actually did a podcast with a friend not long ago and, and, and we were kind of talking about this, but yeah, it, for me, it's, it's not about, it's not a, I, I do enjoy archery and sometimes I will go out with my buddies. Like when we were shooting back out here, I yep. wasn't necessarily working on anything. I was just enjoying company, flinging a few arrows. Sure. But when I'm on my own, it's almost never like that. It's always, I'm always testing or trying to improve on something. Um, so like, for instance, when I'm doing my indoor stuff or in the basement, a lot of times I'm working on my shot execution. And we talked about some drills before. You know, and some of the drills that I like to do are, um, you know, draw back, close my eyes, you know, real close to the to the bail, so you don't worry about missing. I close my eyes and I just focus on pulling through the shot. Okay, I try to relax all my muscles, my hand, my shoulders, everything, and then when I'm ready to to activate that shot execution, I start pulling straight back. I kind of focus on pulling my elbow straight back, and 
I'm just trying to ingrain that shot execution so that it's, I don't ever have to think about it. It's just automatic. It's not, uh, it's not something that, um, you know, is ever going to cause me an issue in the deer woods. So I, I, even though it, I've, I feel like I've mastered that shot execution, I still work on it because I, I've been on the other end of, you know, with target panic and, and drive-by shooting and, and punching the trigger. And, and I don't ever want to go back to that. Um, and then, or sometimes I'll work on, I'll go out on a practice session and I'm working on my pin float. And what that is, is I'm drawing back and I'm focusing, I'm letting my breath settle. I'm relaxing my hand, my shoulders, you know, trying to get, you know, no muscle involvement. You want as, as least muscle involvement as possible. And then I just see what my pin does. Now, is my pin going left to right, kind of in a in a, a figure eight? If that does, if it's doing that, then I add weight to my stabilizer out front. That that minimizes the left to right. Okay, and I got a lot of this information from pro shooters, and just talking with guys that have kind of went down this road. So, if your pin's doing that, you can add some weight out front. It's it's kind of like you know, imagine holding a golf club. Yep. You hold it by the head, and you can whip that that handle real fast but if you hold it by the handle and you try to whip the head where the weight is it's like harder right move slower so it can slow your your horizontal pin movement down so maybe your pin is what i have trouble with is my pin likes to drop so i'll be it'll it'll be there on the bullseye and drop out and bring it back up and drop out so on mine with the matthews bow and you shoot a matthews matthews bow's have a lower grip in the system. They tend to be a little bit top heavy. So yep. uh, they stabilize really well with some some weight below the handle. So <laughs> I run a, a, a rear bar. Um, so if my, my pin is going low and dropping out, I add weight to the rear bar. And what that does is it helps keep the pin up. <laughs> so it's just, you know, you're adding weight to the back, holding your pin up. Okay. Opposite if it's, you know, if your pin's going up, you know, up out of the target, you would want to add weight to the front or take weight off the back. Off the river. So I, what I do, and what I'm, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get a bow set up where my pin just wants to sit there. Yeah. It's like perfectly balanced. When I draw back and I settle my pin, I come to anchor and I settle that it just wants to sit there. And that's not to say it's not moving. It is, but it's minimal. Yep. Um, and I, when we were up at um, the Total Archer Challenge, my buddy uh, – he was having some. He shoots a Matthews too. He he has a, a just a a straightforward stabilizer, which is fine. You can definitely use that for hunting and shoot really good. I know people that do it. It's just the Matthews bows. I think tend to like a little bit of you know weight below the handle, just the way they're built. Um, but anyway, he was he was complaining that he couldn't hold his pin steady, and we just kind of got to talking about this a little bit. And so, you know. When I'm trying to improve my pin fold, that's what I'm doing. I'm tinkering with stabilization, and every bow is different. My traverse is a little different than the triax that I had. Mm-hmm. You know, the vertics might be a little different than the Halon 32. And well, what I'm what I'm trying to do is just get that pin to kind of sit there. I don't want to fight the pin. I want the pin to sit there, and if it's moving a little bit, that's fine. But I want it right on the spot. You know, if it's going like this and jittery, and I'm fighting, and I feel yeah. like that's that's the type of pin movement that creates anxiety and anticipation. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine you're aiming at a, you know, a mule deer buck foam target at the total archery challenge out there. That's a hundred yards and your pins, you know, dancing all over the place. It's above the back. It's below the body. It's actually coming off the animal. Yeah. What's that going to do? It's going to make you want to, you know, time that Hammer. shot. Okay. Oh, all right. It's, it's on the deer. It's off the deer. It's on the deer. Boom. Yeah. 
You know, that's how target panic starts. Yep. So you'd be much better off, even with all that movement, if you just let the pin move and you just executed your shot, no matter what the pin was doing. In fact, you'd be better off if you just stared at the spot you wanted to hit and didn't even care where the pin was. If you just stared at that spot and executed, that pin's always coming back, so you'd be much better off. But to take it to the next level with stabilization, I'm trying to minimize that movement. So I couldn't live with the, the pin dancing all over the target like that, on and off. You know, I want it to stay in that vital, more of like a slow, kind of steady movement, but it's, it's, it's there. It's not moving. So, um, you know, that's when I, you know, that's why I run a, a rear bar. Now, you know, if you're hunting elk in Colorado, you know, maybe, you know, maybe you don't want to carry all that weight. Your shots are going to be 30 yards and in you're in, you know, you're in, you know, thick blowdown country in, in Colorado or something, you know, maybe you don't want to carry all that weight. You could take it off. I shoot fine without it. I don't shoot as good long distance. Yeah. Um, I don't shoot as good close distance either, but it's much less noticeable. Right. 40 yards and in, you know, you might be t- just, just guessing. If I took that rear bar off and I shot a, a group at 30 yards, you know, they're, they're all going to be right there. But when that's on there and that pin is just steady, I mean, they're slapping, I'm busting arrows. So, you know, it might be a little overkill for your typical, yeah. you know, tree stand guy, but I also shoot a heavier bow better. When I'm nervous, when the adrenaline's pumping, that little extra weight, um, I think that's why I gravitate towards the Matthews bows too. They're just they're a little out on the heavier side, but I shoot them better. Yeah, and they they kind of resist that movement and that shakiness, and and then when I add that stabilization and that balance, it helps it even more. So everything is real calm, even when the adrenaline's pumping and I'm you know at full draw on a big buck, it's moving and it's definitely moving more than when I'm shooting in the backyard, but. It's very manageable. I don't feel that anxiety or anticipation to make it go. I just run my shot execution and the arrow, you know, hits behind the pin. And that's another thing too. Like, you know, I want my bow, I want a bow that I relate with well, meaning, um, I like I love archery, so I love bows. I love, you know, you know, getting a bow tech and setting it up and, you know, a lot of times I'll buy bows used more, more for the fact that I'm interested in the cam system and the tuning of it and how it shoots. And some of my buddies, you know, have some of these bows and they've had me work on them and stuff. So I like to do that. I'll sometimes buy them and then I'll sell them or sometimes I'll, you know, uh, you know, sell them to a buddy or trade them or, or whatever. Um, like I get some enjoyment out of that, but I want a bow that just that fits me perfect. And I've went to some other brands and stuff and it's just like, I just, you know, when I say I want a bullet hits behind the pin, like I can be at 80 yards and see that pin on the target and it's floating and I, the shot breaks and I could just tell like when the shot broke, my pin was two inches to the left of the mark. And I, and I know that's where the arrow is going to be, but I've had some bows where I do that. And it looks like it's right on the bullseye when the shot breaks, boom. And I go up there and it's like three inches to the left. And I'm hmm. like, what the hell? But I think you could become more in tune with that the more you shoot, the sure. more you tinker with this stuff. But, you know, I, I, I want a bow that hits behind the pin. Where that pin is at and I execute the shot, it's it's there. Or let's say I do make a bad shot. Let's say I'm at full draw and I'm like, oh, man, I, I, I kind of rushed through that shot or, you know, or, uh, you know, whatever I, I rushed through it or I, I pulled a little harder, you know, I, I didn't, I, I was increasing my, 
my back tension and it didn't go when I wanted to. It just, it just didn't flow well. I want a bow that I'm still going to go up there and it's going to be boom right there in the group. Yeah. You know, and there's some bows that do that for me and some bows that just don't. <laughs> and the reason, and the, the, the way I know that is because I'm, I guess I'm so, you know, uh, specific on like writing down like my group size and my testing and stuff like that. So, you know, I, some of the older bows that I had, like Hoyts and Botex and stuff, like I did all a lot of the same stuff. And I'm, I'm where I'm at now because it's the best that I found for me. Yeah. You know, and that might not be the bow for the next guy. Sure. Um, but, you know, that's the, I guess that's kind of the level of the, you know, preparation that, uh, that I like to do. And it comes back, back to another one of those principles of like deliberate practice is that not only should you have a purpose with your practice, but I, I also remember reading about the importance of quantifying your success with that practice too, finding some way to measure mm-hmm. did it make progress. And you've mentioned over and over different ways that you're trying to measure things, measure what progress you made, measure the improvement, measure how well or how, or, or how worse maybe you got in certain things. And I think that has allowed you to fine tune and keep getting better and better and better. And that's a great, that's something I do not do a good job of at all when it comes to like my archery. I'm just out there flaying them and hoping I'm like, do I feel like better about today? Like I'll come in and wife will be like, how to go? I'm like, oh, that was a good day. Or some days I'm like, son of a bitch. <laughs> um, so that's how I measure success is yeah. the first words I say when I come back in the house, but that's probably not the best way to do it. Um, so you're going out there with a purpose. You're, each time you're going out there for one of these sessions, you're thinking about something you're going to try to improve usually. Is there like a typical time frame that you like, is there something, is it just whatever time you have or is, do you feel like there's value to making sure that a couple times a week you do spend an hour because that really builds up your muscle memory or something or is there value in yeah i don't know anything like that that you think about or is yeah or not? I, th- I feel like uh you know those longer those longer sessions are important i feel like the five arrow thing you know make you go out there try to make five per- perfect shots that's more of like uh you're just checking the status right you're making sure like okay boom i got it you know yep. my form is good I'm going to put all the pressure on this first arrow. This is my one shot at, you know, that big whitetail at, you know, whatever range. And you, you know, you put it right where it needs to be. That's a good feeling. You're like, you're, you don't need 10 shots to warm up. You're, yep. you're there, you're ready. So I, I use those short ones more of like a, just a check, Yeah. you know, like a system check. Those longer sessions, whether it's half hour, an hour, two hours, whatever, those are when I try to work on things. And, you know, couple of those things we already talked about, or it might be just, you know, getting your sight marks. Um, you know, some of those longer distance things, it does take some time to kind of get accurate sight marks. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not shooting a hundred yards cause I want to shoot at a deer at a hundred yards. It's just it, for me, it, that longer practice, when I start shooting at that distance, like my hundred yard groups start looking like my old 40 yard groups, you know, after a while. And, and anybody could do that yeah. going through, you know, some of the same setup, uh, you know, processes that, that guys do, but, um, it just gives me so much more confidence at those shots that we take at deer yeah. in the deer woods. You know what I mean? It, it, it feels, they feel like gimmies, yeah. you know, and they didn't used to feel like gimmies to me. They used to feel like this could go either way, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it, it really, uh, and, and it reflected like that. I think I was lucky. I did have some, a few seasons where, I was struggling with target panic so bad and I, I, I did lost multiple animals, but I, it came on quick and I, I 
realized it quick and I did what I needed to do to fix it quick. So I had a short window where it was causing me big t- problems. Yeah. Now m- the beginning of, you know, my archery hunting, I wasn't executing the shot the way I am now. And I wasn't making perfect shots by any means all the time, but I didn't have target panic. I was making kill, you know, kill shots, maybe not perfect, but, uh, um, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't to, to the level that are the comfortable, uh, the way I feel comfortable with it now, but there was that, that short window where what I was, where I was really struggling. And I think a lot of guys that kind of end up going this route went through a similar period. You talk to a lot of the, the the pro archers, like a lot of them went through a period like this. They love archery. They love it so much. And they start going to 80, 90, hundred yards, whatever. And their pins dancing all over the place. And they start punching the trigger because yeah. their anxiety level is high. So a lot of, if you talk to a lot of these guys, they have the same sort of story. Yeah. You know? So, so you mentioned this way, one way to improve your confidence and just everything at actual shooting ranges in the field is to stretch it out in practice. So take these really long shots, get good at long shots when you're in your practice sessions so that 30 and 40 yards feels like a gimme actually out there in the field. Um, are there any other ways you put stress on your situation in practice? So this is something we talked about with David Wise is he's always trying to find ways to stress his system to practice. I think he called it like practicing at the fringes. So even as like a half pipe skier, he would try to practice with the worst case scenarios so that when he was actually out there, you know, uh, in, you know, in the big stage on the big stage, no possible scenario could surprise him. So do you do anything? I, I know something, you know, people talk about within our world is trying to shoot at different positions, stuff like that. Um, anything along those lines you do to, to change things up in your practice? Yeah, absolutely. So all this stuff that I've been talking about so far is pretty much in the backyard, calm wind, perfect, you know, your feet on even ground. You know, I, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to narrow down my setup to get the most accurate, forgiving um, setup that I can get that I'm most confident in. Yeah. Once I, once I know I'm going to roll with something, then I kind of switch modes to like, okay, now it's time to prepare for hunting. Yeah. You know, and that's when, I mean, when's the last time you shot a deer standing on flat ground, you know, with no wind from ground level? Yeah. Like never. (laughs) (laughs) Never. Can't imagine that one. Yeah. So, um, so that's when I start to do some other things. Like, so for instance, like, you know, when I went on my antelope, I, I knew my shots were going to be the antelope hunt a few years ago. I knew my shots were going to be long and I knew I was probably going to be on my knees. So I practiced a ton on my knees at, you know, hundred yards, 110 yards, you know, hoping that that 70 yard, 80 yard shot that I was probably going to get was going to be feel easy. Yeah. You know, so that's how I prepared for that one. Or, you know, um, a lot of times, you know, I switch nearly all my shooting out of, you know, especially when I started using the saddle more, or even, even when I use the tree stand, a lot more angled shots, um, coming out of trees, you know, uh, just to, I, I practice a ton on flat ground. Now it's time to switch modes and start to practice real life shooting scenarios because I can't shoot the same groups I can at 80, um, you know, standing on a tree stand, angle down that I can on flat ground, yeah. you know, with no wind. So now it's trying to, you're starting to kind of, um, work on that stuff so that you know what you can get away with, you know, where your, you know, extremes are, where, you know, where, where you should kind of keep your comfort level. Um, if I am shooting on back, uh, on flat ground, like a lot of times I'll have like these old, um, tree stumps or, or logs that we cut and I'll, I'll put one foot up 
you know, and shoot like that. So, you know, when I, when I shot, um, my mule deer last year, that's how I, well, I was like, my, my back foot was, you know, like two feet higher than my bottom foot, you know, so just things like that kind of, that kind of alter your balance. And it, you know, when your form is, is really solid and ingrained, you know, what you could, doesn't really matter what your lower body's doing. You try to keep from the waist up that same, that's my goal is try to keep that, that waist up form the same, no matter what I'm doing. And there's some severe things, severe angles from a tree stand, like straight down. Um, you know, there's definitely certain situations where that's, that's going to be compromised some. So you have to practice those shots, those really awkward, you know, those, those really tough shots. You do have to practice them to see where your arrow hits and and how you perform. And, um, those are really important. So what you talked about summer routine, as I get towards when I say, you know, I want to kind of peak at the, you know, right at the beginning of hunting season, that's when I start really working on that stuff. This stuff, testing arrows, you know, ingraining shot execution, all that stuff is is gone. We've we found something we're going to run with, so now we're switching to hunting mode. And what time of year is it? Like, are you saying the last couple of weeks before hunting season, the last month, the last two months? Like, when do you really like to be focusing on that part of your? Um, I would like I would want to be doing that kind of stuff at least a month before my first hunt. Okay, you know, so you know, just really kind of switch gears. That's when I switch to broadheads. I'm shooting all my my uh, my shots with broadheads. All your shots are broadheads. The last month. Yeah. I mean, I might, I might throw, you know, like let's, I'm not going to like, you know, burn through packs and packs of them, but yeah, I'll shoot, you know, I might shoot three broadheads and one field point or something like that in a group or something like that. You know what I mean? But the majority, I want to make sure those broadheads or what, you know, is, is working well with my system that they're flying well. I want to know what they're doing in the wind. Are they drifting more than my field points? Cause that's something you need to know, especially if you're going to be hunting out West, you know, it's, not uncommon to have a 60 to 80 yard shot. It's, it's just not. And, you know, if you want to increase your chance of success, you know, you can prepare for, you know, that type of range and be, you know, really deadly, but you, those are things you need to know. You put a a broadhead on the front, you're going to get more, you know, more arrow drift. So another thing at the total archer challenge too, like when you shoot a lot, you, you start to see and you understand like what your trajectory is doing. Right. So there were some shots where, you know, we see, you know, a bedded muley, but you know, maybe 60 yards out, there's a tree that's covering the vitals. Like there was a, there's one in particular, I'm thinking there was a bent over tree and it was right where you want to hit your arrow. So what I did was I ranged the tree and then I ranged the muley's head. The muley was like an 87. So we were all looking at her like, oh man, like where, where do we hit? We, right. you, like you could aim at the butt and just hit foam. That'd be the safe play. But so because I, because I could range the 60 and then I could range, you know, the 87 on the muley, I knew just from shooting so much that I know my trajectory is going to miss that. <laughs> so someone that doesn't shoot as much might not, yeah. they might not take that shot, you know, or, you know, or, or whatever, but I knew and. You know, a lot of the, the guys I were with are, are experienced shooters too, and they did the same thing. You just, I would put the pin right on the tree, and it just sailed right over, dropped right into the vitals. Nice. So that's cool. Those are things that you know, little things that you know may or may not ever happen in the woods. But I guess, like you were saying, you know, practicing the fringes, I like to prepare for all possibilities. You know what I mean? Like if if there's if there's a 
a, a bowl of a lifetime in Colorado and there's a little tiny hole to squeeze it through. I'm not going to, I'm not going to wish it through. I want to know that it's going to go through there, but if I know it will, if I execute a good shot, I want to have the confidence to take that shot. Yeah. You know what I mean? I do. I'm not going to, I'm not going to roll the dice and be like, eh, I'm not sure if that's yeah. the case. I'm not taking the shot, Yep. but if it's possible, I want to have the confidence to do it. Man, it seems like it seems like the way to do that is to have the kind of system you have in place. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It works for me. Um, and like I said, the system has morphed. It might be different five years from now if we right. talk again, but it works for me. And I'm not saying this is what people should do. It, it, you know, I, I'm definitely not saying that. It's just what I do. Yeah. You know what I mean? Now, does this level of attention to minutia and preparing for the fringes and everything that you apply with your archery preparation in the summer, does that translate to other things you're doing in the field preparing? So, uh, yeah, answer me that. Yeah, totally. So, you know, I take the same, I, th- I feel like I take the same type of thought process in preparing for the hunting season um, as I do with, with this. It's the same same type of system. Um, you know, I'm always trying to find that next buck. I'm always trying to fine tune setups. I'm always trying to find new setups in new areas, scout new ground. Try, you know, basically the way I always explain it is I try to over prepare. So the chances of my, of me not succeeding are almost zero. Yeah. Like I would have to be really unlucky to not have some success. So I try to over prepare, do things, you know, to me, it's not, to me, it's not over preparing or overboard. It's just what I do. Yeah. But when I, when I kind of look at, you know, other people, um, and I'm sure there's people out there that prepare more than me. Um, but it's just what I do. And to me, it just, it's just feels what I need to do. And it's what I enjoy to do or enjoy, enjoy doing. So I make the time to do it. Now it's a lot less than what it used to be. So, um, you know, before, before kids and everything, but I still prioritize that time. I try to do it in bursts. Like I spent a lot of time as soon as that snow melted. Um, I spent a lot of time. I got a lot of scouting in then, um, went down to Iowa in preparation for this hunt, um, scouted two or three new pieces of public, all the places that, uh, you know, all the places we were already familiar with, you know, got all the trees, marked all the access. We, we, I mean, we put on so many miles in just a couple days in preparation for this hunt coming up. You know, I, I, I'm going during the rut. I want to see the rut sign. Yeah. So I wouldn't feel like I did what I needed to do if I just showed up. Yep. I know I could do that and still kill something, but it's just, I, like I said, I want to be prepared yeah. and and that's a big hunt to me. It's important. I've waited years for the tag. It's expensive. I want to do what I need to do that will, you know, increase my chance of success the most. So, so when it comes to scouting, I know that you take scouting really seriously. Um, you constantly are helping me scout more simply by the fact that I know you're out there scouting and I'm not, and I feel bad about it. So it gets me off my ass <laughs> in the woods. Um, but you mentioned that snow melt time period, right? Snow comes off. It's probably the very best time of year to be able to see sign from the year before and, and, and nothing's grained up yet. But now it's June when we're talking right now. What if someone just now is like realizing, ah, oh, crap, I really do need to get out and do some scouting. 
What is there anything they can accomplish during the summer? What are you doing still now during the summer? Everything's green and full. Yeah. What can you actually accomplish now? This is because, you know, with, uh, you know, a growing family and all that stuff. When I said I had to cut some things down, basically what I did was where I used to scout, you know, if you, if you saw me 20 to, you know, 32, those years I was literally, I was in the woods trying to learn about deer five or six days a week. I would literally go right from work and scout and I would do that just about till it was dark. And it's just, I was completely enthralled in it. It's all I wanted to do. Um, and you know, I think that kind of created a basis for a lot of, um, you know, what I do now and, and what I've learned. But now that I'm a little busier, um, I, I have, I, I kind of set specific time frames. So, you know, in the winter months when there's snow, like I said, I focus on that indoor shooting stuff. I will scout some then too, cause I do like to see, uh, like winter habitat, what the deer are doing. I look for trails in the snow. Okay. Like, you know, this could potentially be, um, uh, you know, uh, if we get snow during that late season, this could potentially be a good area. I'm looking for tracks of deer, um, mature buck tracks of maybe deer that survived, um, that sort of thing. So then, like I said, that when that snow melt, that's when I get in a bunch of my scouting and and I try to scout every area that I do hunt and throw in a handful of new potential areas. And I'm, I'm just trying to, that's more, I'm looking for a rut sign. I am looking for like buck beds and that sort of thing too. I'm always looking for that. But, um, just everything is so visible then. So then get out of that. You get starting um, like, you know, May, June, July, you know, I, I kind of focused, I focus more on the Turkey side of things. I think during that time, um, you know, I don't, I don't Turkey hunt uh, a whole terribly lot, but I really do enjoy it. Um, so I think right now, this time frame, right now, that kind of May, June, July, I probably make another switch, but at that time I, pr- I probably scout. Well, I know I scout quite a bit less and that's, you know, I kind of focus that time more with family, do a little turkey hunting with the kids. Um, you know, do definitely get my archery in there, but it's kind of a slower time for me. And it's a slower time because I'm choosing it to be slower. I don't, I still think there's plenty of information to find out there. Um, but for me personally, it's like, okay, I, I can't do this all year round like I yeah. used to. I need to pick windows. So yeah. I focus on the windows where I think it's most beneficial to me and my style. So Makes sense. then, you know, then you get into that July, August. That's when I start looking more for specific bucks that made it, you know, targets to go after. And that's when I start kind of planning my fall. Like, okay, I got, you know, there's a, you know, a, a new big buck over here. He looks at least three and a half. You know, I don't know who this deer is, you know, and I try to keep tabs on him. You How know. are you actually doing? Uh, like keeping tabs? Yeah. So like how July, August, you, you're starting to find these deer that you're actually going to hunt and plan your fall. Yeah. How specifically is that happening? Is it that you are going and checking cameras once a week or something and are moving cameras from property to property? Or do you go and sit on these properties at night and watch fields or walk me through that first step finding these bucks you're going to hunt that year in yeah. July or August. I guess I'd say all of the above. I, I, I do, um, I do a lot of glassing driving around. Um, uh, a lot of times, you know, a lot of the areas I hunt, it's not something you necessarily see from the road. So I will get out and glass that, you know, that last hour. Um, 
And usually, you know, I'm focusing on areas that I already know something's there. I'm just trying to see what he is. You know, did he make it? Is he there? What what did he turn into? And I'm, I'm trying to narrow down those, you know, those few bucks that I'm going to focus on. Um, I definitely do run cameras, especially here. I don't do it much out of state. Out of state, I focus more on just like, you know, kind of boots on the ground scouting. And, and I do still like that that aspect of like not knowing what's there. You see a, you know, a mature bucks in here, but I have no idea what he is. Yeah. I like that. I'm, and I miss that sometimes in Michigan. I get that. I get very few surprises. You know what I mean? Cause I do, I do scout things pretty thoroughly. I mean, every once in a while, you know, you'll get like a three-year-old or something or a four-year-old pop up that you just like, Oh, where's, you know, yeah. who is that deer? But, um, I know my area so well that that doesn't happen as much around home. But, um, yeah, I'll, I'll check camera. I'll put cameras out. Um, I'll check them. But during the summer months, I, I change things to, uh, uh, mainly it might be for financial reasons, gas, batteries in the camera or whatever. I usually do one or maybe two checks before the season. That's it. So, um, it's, I'm not, I'm not one of those guys. I need to know what he's doing in July even August, like I want to know, like I'll pull those cameras and I'll look through those pictures and be like, oh yeah, man, that, those are sweet. There he is there. But I want to know where he's at those last few days of September. Yeah. You know, and that's when I, uh, there's a lot of times where I won't even touch a camera till then. Um, and I don't necessarily have it exactly where I'm hunting, uh, like the, the actual location. I'll have it in a spot where I feel like I can still get pictures, um, but I'm not ruining where my actual hunting is, Yep. you know, my, my hunting location. And those spots are usually set up and prepared ahead of time because I know the areas. I know where the buck beds are, yep. the ones that I found. I know the travel routes. I have a feeling that, you know, the buck that's bedded in this this bed, you know, will will feel safe traveling, you know, this distance through this this bit of cover just because he can stay hidden. So it's, it's all those little pieces that I'm, I'm trying to put together in my mind and through history of the, of the, of the area of the property or history of what that deer has done in the past. It's all those little pieces that I'm putting together. So the, the locations are almost always ready and prepared ahead of time. Um, I won't say always because I do a lot of running and gunning too, but, a lot of those spots I'm familiar with, you know, if a buck shows up there, you know, a lot of times they do and they bed in the same areas that, you know, they have before or our mature deer have before and use those same type of areas. And, you know, I can, if I hunt it right and if I wait for the right timing, um, you know, if, if a deer shows up on one of those properties, I can usually get a crack at them. So let's rewind a little bit though. So, you're running cameras, but you're not checking them till like September, typically, right? Yeah, it's very, I've I've really toned that back. I used to be like the you know once every two weeks, three weeks, even once a month guy, and and now I'm not. Yeah. So it basically it's just to determine: Do I have the buck here that I want to hunt? So where do you you mentioned how you're locating cameras in places that you can still get pictures, but it's not going to mess up where you're going to hunt. What are those types of locations you put a camera in the summer to get that inventory? Yeah. Um, in the summertime, you know, I'm looking for, 
you know, apple trees, you know, field edges of, of food sources where they do feed in the summer. So a lot of times I'm like around bean fields. Um, you know, I have a, you typically have a knowledge of like where the mature deer bed, you know, so like, let's say they're bedding, you know, down this ravine and back in this, this low marshy area and they're coming up the travel, the typical travel is up through the ravine and then they come into this giant destination bean field. So I'll put my, my camera there. A lot of times if there's a, um, a licking branch or something, something that kind of just sweetens the spot, I'll put it there because deer work licking branches like all year long. And it's not going to be as, you're not going to get the, as good a pictures that you are like, you know, in, in mid late October, but you're still going to, it concentrates deer and you're going to get, you know, they're, they're more in, uh, you know, more in, in, in groups that time of year. So a lot of times I'll, I'll get pictures there. I focus a lot on water, water crossings. Um, it, you know, it, it just kind of depends, you know, a lot of times I'll put them to like, if, if there's a, a travel area, um, to, you know, to a food source, I'll try, I try to put it in there on, you know, a few of the main trails, but knowing that, you know, the camera's here, but I, and the bed's over here, but I'm going to be hunting much closer to the bed, Yep. you know, because the mature deer is not going to be, you know, during the hunting season is not going to be getting to where that camera is yep. in daylight. I don't, I don't, because of my, the way I set up cameras, I don't get very many daylight pictures. Yeah. And I, I do that on purpose. I don't really want my cameras to be getting daylight pictures. If I, if they are, I should be hunting there, Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I don't, I don't really like my cameras where I hunt. And I know some guys do like some, I, I think I watched a video of, uh, um, you know, Jeff Sturgis saying that he likes the camera where in all of his tree stand locations and don't get me wrong. Like I, I'll still just like everything else. I'm always trying new things. I'm always testing new things. So, uh, you know, there are times where I'll try that, but for the most part, it just kind of goes against my instinct as a hunter. I don't really want intrusion where, um, you know, where I think I'm going to get the shot. It, it, I might, the, the, the scenario where I will say that I do put them where I might hunt would be more in like a travel corridor, like a rut travel corridor. Okay. During the rut, I think you can get away with more. Um, you know, it's much more sensitive when you're hunting a buck kind of more in his secure area, his bedding area, you know, where he feels safe. Those are the areas I don't want cameras, and that's where a lot, that seems to be where a lot of my kills happen. Yeah, but during the rut, like in a, a travel route, yeah, I'll, I'd have one there for sure. And then a lot of times I'll put cameras in those spots and just let them soak all year, right. and just keep it as like a, a learning tool. Is this a spot I want to invest some time in? Mm-hmm. Oh man, look, I'm going through these pictures. Late October was on fire. I do that a lot with my cameras, so yep. I, it's more for information for years to come. You know, yeah. or, or you can eliminate that area, you know, off or, or whatever. So I won't say I don't, I never put them where I hunt, but those sensitive areas where I seem to kill my oldest deer, I don't put cameras there. So speaking of, of going in or staying out of these sensitive areas, what's your cutoff period? Like when, when does off season or maybe, maybe it doesn't, maybe you never have this. I don't know. I feel like everyone has a different time period when they say, okay, I shouldn't be going back in, into the cover anymore. I shouldn't be hanging stands anymore. I shouldn't be fiddling with cameras anymore because it's time to let it really lay because hunting season is about to come. Like For me, it's always been at a minimum the end of 
August. It's like, so once summer's done, September is always like, leave it untouched. Yeah. And then I'm super duper careful the whole rest of the year. But late August, you know, lots of times I'm finalizing food plots or running around last minute trying to hang my last stand or something. Um, when is that for you? Well, the, the sensitive areas I'm talking about, you know, the, when I'm looking for, you know, like bedding areas and areas where I'm going to try to ambush a buck that's close to his like secure zone, his secure area. I mean, that's all, that's all done. Like, like in early spring, you know, when the snow melts, I try to get that all done. Um, and then I don't really go back to those spots. Like I, I try to find all that information in a, a month period with a ton of scouting. I try to get that all squared away. This episode is brought to you in part by O'Reilly Auto Parts, who are in the business of keeping your car on the road and also keeping you happy. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. I use the O'Reilly by me. It's right in downtown where I live. And the team there is super knowledgeable. When you got questions, they're happy to help you out. It's a great store to go into. The team at O'Reilly Auto Parts, they can test your battery for free in or out of your car. And don't ignore your check engine light. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today, a free diagnostic service exclusively at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Need your windshield wipers replaced? Brake light fixed? Quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop to get some help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in the store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'Reilly Auto, O-R-E-I-L-L-Y, O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. And then and then I want to stay out of there. Um, the other spots, like, you know, if I'm looking more towards like a, a rut, you know, a rut type setup or something like that, those are the ones that now tend to seem like, you know, we're busy. They kind of, you know, you want to get them done in the spring, but now it's like the beginning of summer and they're still not done. Yeah. You know, or there's still more spots to, to, to prep or to, to scout out. Those are the spots that I don't mind pushing back a little bit because November is still a long ways away and it's not as sensitive as an area, you know. Um, but even with those, you know, I'd say, I'd say August. Yeah. By August, I don't want to be in there. You know, I just, I, I feel like, I, f- I feel like during, you know, one, I don't know. I get, when you get that late in the game, I feel like every time you go in, I just cringe. You mm-hmm. know, it's, I get that feeling. I'm just, I'm just ruining my chances here. I'm yeah. decreasing my chances. So I like to hang back 
as much as possible and uh, get things done, you know, quick and early um, if I can. But, you know, you just you can only do what you can do. Everybody's super busy, and, and I'm just like the rest of the guys. I find myself, you know, late summer, like, oh, crap, you know, trying to get these. But I try to prioritize those sensitive areas, those areas where I get, you know, 80% of my kills first yeah. early in the spring. Get those done. Those are the most important. Those are what where those are my bread and butter. These other areas, because they're the rut, they're going to pick up later, late October, you know, first two weeks of November. Those are the ones that I'm okay with getting to now or, or in July or early August. And we need to take one more break here to thank our partners at Whitetail Properties. And I was just checking out their YouTube channel here recently. One of the many resources they have, in addition to lots on their website at whitetailproperties.com, but their YouTube channel it's got this land beat video series, and the most recent video is all about it. Well, it's a really quick example about how to develop a bow hunting food plot and showing you a specific scenario where this land specialist is trying to map out how he's going to break up a larger field into two smaller sections using a food plot screen, which is something that I really, really recommend. It's something I use a lot. I just spent a whole lot of time planting some food plot screens myself. So check out this video. It's on the Whitetail Properties YouTube channel. The video is called Bow Hunting Food Plots, Get Deer Within Bow Range. Quick one, helpful to see it, and I think you can use it as an example of how you might be able to do this in your own area. And how much, um, how is your prep changing at all with, and I know you, you've kind of used saddles throughout different periods of your hunting time period, but I think you're maybe using saddles a little more now than you were for, it seems like you went a little bit of like you're using a bunch, then you went back to stands a little bit. Yep. Now maybe you're back to using saddles a little bit. That's kind of changing how I think about how I'm going to set up some of my farms because I'm not going to be hanging stands now. So I'm trying to decide, okay, do I just want to prep a handful of trees? Do I want to prep a bunch of trees? Um, what does your preparation look like when you're considering a saddle? Yeah, um, not much different to be honest with you, because I was never the type that like hung stands and left them. Um, every area, every, every area I hunt, uh, other people hunt. So there's the competition out there. So I, I was always the guy, you know, bring my stand in, take my stand out. Um, with a saddle. So I, I'm kind of the same way. I do prep, um, a lot of spots, but what I notice now is like, as I, as I get older and I'm, I guess my, my style and everything kind of gets more dialed in, I prepare less. I prepare the spots where I really feel like I can kill something, not like, Oh, this might be a good spot or, Oh, I might be able to call a deer in here or, yeah. or if a buck, you know, does come through here, I want to have a tree ready to go. A lot of those ones I don't do anymore. And if, if those things pop up, I just do like a, a run and gun type yeah. setup, but I make sure like, you know, those, those spots you come across that you're just like, Oh man, like this, this is where the big bucks living. Okay. Now where can I hunt him? Yep. Where can I get in? Okay. I'm going to be ass accessing here. You know, I'm going to need this type of wind. Like how close can I get to this without him busting me? You know, he can't smell me. He can't see me. He can't hear me. How close can I get to this spot without, without any of those things happening? So then what I do is, uh, you know, I, 
I, I, I'll get in there and I'll look out and I'll listen and I'll try to figure out where that is. It might be if it's a little more rolling terrain, you know, I might be able to get just over a rise or something. If it's real thick, I might be able to get in, you know, even closer. Um, it just depends. And then I got to take into account how, how noisy is it? You know, is this a spot I can clear out a little bit or is it a spot that I'm, you know, not allowed to do that? So all that, all that stuff comes into account, but I spent a lot of time in those locations because I want it to be perfect. You know what I mean? So, you know, those ones, um, those, those types of scenarios and that type of situation, those are the ones that I take the most time with. I prioritize and I get those done and out of the way. And are you actually getting to, do you trim out shooting lanes and stuff on those spots? Like, do you actually, you have your perfect tree picked out? Do you put pegs in it or anything else? Or is it, hey, I'm still going to bring my saddle and sticks in or something. I'll climb up. But what other prep do you do that point other than figuring it all out in your head? Yeah. Um, so if it's like, uh, you know, if it's a spot that I've been to for, you know, an area I've been to for years and I kind of know that, you know, know the area and I already have my spots kind of picked out that stuff, you know, it might be a scenario where I just kind of go in, climb up the tree and trim. Um, there's not too many spots anymore where I like leave stuff up like sticks or pegs or anything like that. I just, it just hasn't worked out for me. So most of that stuff, I like to kind of be invisible. Um, those, those spots where I share with other hunters, it just like, I feel like if they know where you're at, they just tend to gravitate towards it. Mm -hmm. So I I try to leave no trace. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll go in those and I'll trim those spots. Um, you know, some of the spots, like when we were, you know, when we're hunting like public land or something, we're not really allowed to do much trimming. So, you know, those scenarios, you just try to work with best you can, but a lot of times, yeah. I'll, if it's if it's a sensitive area, though, if it's close to a, a um, you know, in a like a secure zone where that buck, I think like he'll feel safe. I'll try to do as minimal trimming as possible. I don't want to make it look like I was there. Just you know, a few holes. Hopefully, I don't have to do too much. Hopefully, it's not so thick like you can't get an arrow. If it's so thick you can't get arrows anywhere, then I'm I'm getting on the edge of it. You know, I'm not going to go in there and create all these freaking highways of shooting lanes in yeah. there. It's just not, it's not going to work out for you. Yeah. But I'll get on the edge of it. And usually if it's that thick, the deer will feel comfortable moving through that and you might be able to catch them on the edge. That's yeah. a lot of times I run into that scenario where it is so thick in there. It's like, man, how, like, yeah, you could get up there, but when you get up, you know, 15 feet, but you look down, you can't get an arrow in anywhere. And that's where a lot of times where those big bucks like to be. Yep. So if. If you see that, I don't try to make that situation work for me. I get on the edge, the edge where I feel like he'll, he'll make that mistake and that, you know, that one day when the timing and everything's perfect, he'll make it to that edge, yep. you know. So that's that's kind of what I bank on. But then there's those, those other scenarios where, you know, it's just the way the, the, the you can come in on like on a, a, a low creek or something and you got the the water running and it's creating some noise or some windy conditions or something or wet conditions. And you can get like, I can almost get within bow range of these bucks sometimes. It just depends on the, on the, the terrain and the situation. Yeah. There's some spots like that I've been in that you, if you can get to that tree and you can get up perfectly, you can get up and you can actually like see the deer, Yeah, you know, and that that's, doesn't happen often, but, 
or you know that the that bed's 50 yards away and it's like oh man he's not there he's not there i guess he's not in there tonight and then it's like 10 minutes of shooting like you see him stand up stretch <laughs> i mean that's such a cool feeling yeah but um so it just it just depends everything you know every scenario is a little different so i i spend a lot of time in those those areas um and i really try to think about all of that how is this going to play out how could this play out where are the areas that I, you know, if I, if I come in this way, could he, could he see me there? Like I'm down in the bed, like kneeling down. I'm like, could he see me there? Well, you know, then, then I'll pick out an access and I might walk it and I'll, I'll be like, is this too noisy? Can I get away with this? Am I going to need windy conditions to do this? Am I going to need wet? There's spots where, uh, that I need wet or windy yeah. to get in and I, and, and I save those spots. So if I can get, 30 or 40 of, you know, those types of locations through, you know, sufficient preparation and sufficient, you know, hard work, you know, trying to find those spots over years and years and just keep building on those. Like if you, if you, if you prepare to that level, how can you not have success? Yeah. You know what I mean? How can I, how can I not? That's the way I look at it. I'm not going to succeed on every one. Yeah. You know, that, that buck's, that buck's not going to show up. This buck's going to get killed by another hunter. This buck's going to come out, you know, and get downwind to me somehow and, and win me. The wind's going to switch and get me, you know, on this deer. But this one I'm going to get, mm-hmm. you know. And and then I feel like, you know, the more you kind of feel confident in in your system and the more experience you have, all those, like, things that can go wrong and those scenarios that can go wrong, you, you almost, you know, can almost foresee them and, and you can really minimize them. Yep. You know, like, so I can, I can get into an area. I can see because I've made the mistake before I can see like, this isn't going to work. I need to back up. Yep. I need to, I need to, I need to be out a little bit or I need to be a little bit closer. Like he's not going to get to me here yep. or the wind's going to swirl here. This is the perfect, just like, you know, that big, that big nine I killed a couple of years ago. I hunted that deer for two years in the area where all the signs said I needed to be. I had pictures of them there. Um, there, there was several scrapes. It was a, it was a, a nice open area with like tall, tall weeds with oak trees. And it was just this open area inside of a, a woods along a river bottom and in the surrounding cover was real thick. So it's just like, Oh man, he's going to feel great coming into this opening. It's perfect but the wind swirled like crazy and I hunted it and I got up there and I'm throwing milkweed and it's like, the wind, you know, the wind's coming out of the North, but my milkweed's flying South. Like why? Uh, <laughs> maybe it's just switching today. So then I come back again, the, you know, a couple weeks later or whatever, it's coming out of the North. Boom. It's going back South. Why is it doing that? Like, is the, what, what's wrong with this weather, man? You know what I mean? Like <laughs> this app is saying North wind. It's uh-huh. not, it took, it took me a while. Like, it's swirling here. I'm getting a, I'm getting a swirling effect and it's coming into that opening, shooting down and blowing right back. Yeah. So what did I have to do? I had, I, I figured that out through trial and error and I backed off a hundred yards and I ended up killing the deer the first sit. Yeah. And there was, there, I, there was at least two times where that deer was coming in, um, on previous years to that opening and he winded me. Wow. And I'm sure of it because it came from the same, uh, direction. I never did lay eyes on him, but he came from that same direction out of the bed where I killed him. And he came in and it was one of those, you, you know, when you hear a, like a big 
giant deer like snort it's yeah. like it's a it's different, different sound yeah and then you hear it bound away and it's like yeah okay that's not a light deer yep. <laughs> a single deer heavy thump thump yeah like ah yeah i know it just happened yep it happened to me twice so and uh you know it was just that little adjustment so now you know now i know if i if i find an opening in the woods like that that looks awesome i need to get up and test what the wind's doing yeah because I've already made a mistake. I hunted a deer two years in a situation like this, and it, it doesn't work. Yep. You know, you got to find, sometimes it's, you find that perfect tree, and it's like, man, this is the tree, and you're, you know, you're checking and seeing what the wind's doing. It's just not working for you, and you might have to pick that that other tree that's not so perfect, but the wind's perfect for yep. you, you know, so. So what, so so a lot of what you're discussing there though comes from having years worth of experience because you've scouted these places so extensively, you've hunted them, you know some spots. What if I threw you into this scenario, which a lot a lot of people happen to find themselves in at some time or another? Let's say it's you lost your previous places to hunt. You have no other places to hunt now. You lost permission everywhere. There's no public land where you live. Let's say, um, but you get permission on a new farm. It's the only spot you're going to hunt, let's say, or at least for the sake of this discussion. You get permission on a new 80-acre piece. You get permission on August 1st. What do you do if you have to start all of your preparation on August 1st for this property? And and, and, and walk me through your mindset. Walk me through what you're doing from the moment like you get permission. Like you're at your house. You got the permission. Let's say you talked to them before, and then they give you a call and say, yep, okay, yeah, you got it. Now you know, okay, now for the next 30 days or whatever, I got to get ready. Talk me through from the very beginning what you're thinking about, what you're looking at, how you're breaking things down to then what you actually do once you get into the field and, and, and what you're doing over the next couple of weeks. Okay. Well, it's funny because uh, in 2000, 2001, I had the same exact scenario huh. um, in a, a farm not far from here. Actually, I got permission um, it was, it might even have been, it was even later than that. It was like September, like mid September. Wow. And so I had gotten permission immediately got out my, uh, you know, back then we didn't have Onyx. It was just, you know, like my paper map. I think I got down from like the city building in Jackson, but I looked at the aerial, just kind of got the lay of the land. And from, from very early on, like I, I've always gravitated towards like, I think early on, like I, I got on nice deer because I always went towards the thickest stuff. It was just like, okay, I saw a nice deer come out of the thickest stuff. Like I just, it just made sense to me early. Yeah. So, you know, you, there was a, um, a, a river bottom coming through this area and then there was like these little points kind of coming off and this, this tall mark, marsh grass and these like these these lone trees kind of like along the river bottom. And it's like, that was the thickest area. Everything else was like open hardwoods or field. So it just gravitated towards that spot. So I went out there just scouting and I walked in the, the, the field that was butted up right next to that was standing corn. And I walked around the, I was just walking the perimeter of the corn. And then right as I was approaching that thick area, right off the cornfield where there's all that marsh grass. And then it, go a little further and there's all these lone trees along this river bottom like in thick tall marsh grass there's there's a couple sets of big buck tracks coming out of that stuff into the standing corn and i'm like whoa you know so i didn't even bother walking into that stuff like it's seasons coming up in like a week right 
week or two. So what I did is I backed up and I found the closest tree that I could get to where they were entering that field. And, you know, you know, back then it was just like, again, like I always felt thick cover to thick cover is good. Standing corn is thick cover. Like I felt like, you know, they're coming through here. I feel like I got a chance, you know, there's really no other option. Once you get off the cornfield, you know, you have to get like a ground setup or something. So I found the closest tree that I could get to that transition. And I sat on October 1st and I had two at that time, the two biggest Michigan bucks I've ever seen come out together in a wow. bachelor group. I had my, <laughs> I had my choice between the two, Jeez. both of them over 150 inches. Wow. Yep. And uh, where exactly? Was this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, it was funny. It was where, uh, it was where your buddy Andy helped me with the dog. Oh, right uh, there. The, yep. That, uh, that other buck. So, nice. um, but anyway, um, so the, t- the, the two bucks come out, one was substantially wider than the other. It was like 19 inches wide. They're both kind of similar caliber. I ended up shooting the wider one. But going back to, I guess, going back to your question, if I got permission in August, I feel like August, you know, if I wanted to really learn the property, I might do like a quick burn through everything. August, I think I still think you're okay. If you're, if it was, you know, September 15th, September 20th, I, I think I would play it different. But August, I feel like that's, you know, early enough that I would probably quick get a quick burn through. I I definitely would look at the, the maps and pick out like, okay, this looks like it could be good bedding here. Okay, you know, we got a waterway here, some water, there's a nice little pond or, you know, a drinking hole here. Um, I, I might do a quick burn through the, the thickest, you know, area, just the farm in general and get a quick. And so when you say do a burn through of it, so you mentioned you're going to look at the maps, find a couple like interesting areas. And then when you do this quote unquote burn through, are you saying you're literally going to like grid it or are you just going to go hit like these four or five spots of, of most interest? And like, I'm, I'm actually interested in like, how much do you actually walk? Yeah, uh, I, I would. Uh, how focused is that walk? Yeah, it would depend on the farm, but I would I would focus on the areas of interest. Okay. I'm not going to grid the whole farm necessarily. Okay. Um, you know, I'm if, say your typical Michigan farm. You know, it's going to have some field, probably some woods, maybe some river bottom or marsh or whatever. I'm going to focus on the areas that I know are going to typically hold m- mature deer. And 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 most guys nowadays, I think, can look at a map and kind of pinpoint some of those areas. Um, but for me, even though I'm, I'm decent at doing that with a map, I'm, I'm much better getting boots on the ground. Cause I, when I get boots on the ground, there's just things you miss, yeah. you know, you, you can get into a good area from a map, but once I get on the ground, that's when I really kind of see it. And I could see how everything kind of plays out in my mind and, and what the deer are doing and, and what, what's the caliber of deer in here. Does this, does this place hold a deer that can get to four or five years old, you know, that, that, that whole, the whole picture is in front of you. And then, you know, depending on, you know, what you see, just kind of, you can figure things out, but I wouldn't be afraid if it's an August kind of doing a speed scout, I guess, like through that area, just verifying some, some deer sign. Okay. Yeah. This does look thick. This looks good. Um, you know, maybe even, you know, if I, if I, it was one of those situations where I could like hang stands or something, I, I might throw up some stands or, or, or whatever 
talking about your average guy that, you know, might be in this situation um, and just try to get it all done, like, boom, really quick and then get out. It's not something I would do like, oh, okay, let's go scout it. Sweet. Let's come back next weekend and hang our ladder stands. Yeah. Cool. Next week, let's come out and, you know, put our mineral licks in. Awesome. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's what's going to burn you. But, um, especially like that time of, of year, like, um, bucks are much more laid back and they're much more laid back when they're in the group too. So you, you, you can get away with, you know, going through summer. Typically there's a lot of activity anyway. Um, you know, with humans, so I, I wouldn't be terrified to do that. It wouldn't be my favorite thing. I'd still get that cringe, Yeah, <laughs> but I would do what I needed to do to get it done. Um, very quickly. That's a really and, good point. And, and then just stay out. Now, if we're talking say mid September, like the time frame I found myself in, then I'm going to scout more of the edges. I'm not going to go into that thick stuff. Now yep. I, I, I do exactly what I did at that other farm. I'd walk the field edges. Okay. Now maybe there's some open woods. Okay. I feel comfortable walking in open woods. Okay. Now it's starting to get thick. Okay. I'm going to look at my map. There's a point here that goes out into this marsh. That's definitely going to be a bedding area. So I'm not even going to mess with it. I'm going to assume that is what it looks like. You know, or here's this island here, you know, in this in this marsh with all these, you know, these kind of like brushy trees. That looks like a good bedding area. I'm not even going to verify it. It's on the map. There it is. That's pretty straightforward. Just kind of walk the edges and walk the fringes. And then, you know, when I find something that looks like it might be a good setup, it might be something I would prep. Or it might be something like, okay, you know, we're a little too close. I'm going to do a run and gun. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set it up. The first time I hunt it, you know, and then, and then kind of go from there. Like I've done yep. that in the past too. It's, it's more like a kind of less aggressive. You're learning the property. You're just not learning it intimately. Yep. And you're going to learn it intimately As you throughout hunt. the season. Yeah. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. I get that. So what about the, so we, we've talked about preparing our archery situation. We've talked about preparing, actually learning a property and getting a hunting plan in place. What else are you prepping or taking care of, or what kind of routine do you have around the final days before your hunting season starts? Maybe it's that last week or the last night or whatever it might be for you. What are those things that you're doing at the very end just before it's go time? Yeah, those last two weeks, those are really, really key for me. That's when I'm trying to find the buck that I'm going to try to kill opening day. And there's always one that I'm going to try to kill opening day. And, you know, with, with all this preparation and, you know, all the scouting, you kind of narrow down, you know, to certain areas that, you know, I look for, you know, areas that always hold good deer. And then I'm also looking for deer that I know that have made it in, in their locations. And I'm also looking for deer that I found through scouting. So now I'm trying to find a buck that's showing some t- sort of weakness coming up to those last couple days before right the season. Then. And I'm not trying to be too intrusive. I'm not going to go in there and necessarily check a camera. I, I might if the conditions, um, you know, are good. If you get a good rain or something and my camera's off of where, you know, I'm, I might do that. I might go in there and see like, oh, man, here's a picture of my eight, half an hour before or after dark. Yep. Okay, now I feel, I feel confident. I, I know where he's at because – scouted i know where the beds are yep i feel like i can get in 
I could run and gun, or maybe I already have a, a tree prepped or something. But I feel like I can I can slip in there. The conditions are right. Um, I usually make some sort of move on a deer that first day of the season, and 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 some of them are like it's clear, like okay, this this deer is moving. You know, he's 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 in the area. He's living here, um, and it feels more of like a. I won't say a sure thing, but a, a, like a real he, yeah, confidence is really high. Sure. And then there's other ones where like, okay, he was here, you know, I glassed him coming into this field a few weeks ago, or maybe a week ago, and I haven't seen him since. I checked the camera, he's not on there, but that might be my best lead. And I, I've learned to never just, just because you don't, they're not on camera or you don't see them coming in the field anymore, it doesn't mean they're not there. There's some shifting around that goes in that late summer. You know, you'll have some deer that stay, some deer that leave, and you won't see them again till like December. And then there's those those some deer that that come in. But that's why that that last week week and a half is really key because by that time they're usually there. Yeah. And so I'm I'm just trying to find that one that one scenario where it looks like uh, you know looks like I can get get an early season kill, and it's it's my my favorite time. Um, and I've killed quite a few deer there, but it's, uh, by no means is it like, uh, you know, a hundred percent thing. It's just, that's my goal for opening day. I want to be on a buck. I want to know where he's at. I want to feel, uh, have a real high confidence setup. And I feel like if I prepare enough and I, you know, kind of, you know, spread my scouting enough and, and, and locate, try to locate, uh, enough big deer that I can find one or maybe even two that that are showing some sort of weakness or, or where I feel like I, I got a chance there. So at that point, like, so you, you've done, you've had your wide net cast throughout the summer yep. and then sometime in late summer, early fall, you're kind of saying, okay, here's my five mature bucks or there's 10 mature bucks or there's three mature bucks or whatever. And then now you're getting to that last week or two before the season. Do you, do you, then look at the information you have so far and then say, okay, of these five bucks on the various properties I can hunt, I think buck number one is going to give me the very best chance for the opening night kill. And then do you zoom in all of your focus just on that one deer then and spend the last two weeks doing some glassing there or doing a couple camera pulls or something? Like, do you focus in on that one deer or are you still looking at everything because you want, because your number one October 1st buck might change? Yeah. It, it, it usually things start playing out where like, you know, deer start disperse. Like a, you know, you'll you might seeing this buck coming out, and you know it's like mid September, and all of a sudden like okay he's gone, you know. So he's he's kind of things start falling off, like things start playing out where it just kind of narrows Nashville. you down. Yeah, and um, you know, there's just some some deer, and and to be honest with you, a lot of spots I hunt aren't great for early season um you know holding a buck early season but there are some i do have some that every year hold a good buck um so it you know i I tend to focus on those areas but i'm also trying to always find new areas that are like that there's some areas that are just literally that first week is like your chance and if you don't get it done then it's not one of those spots you want to wait till the rut because they're gone the crops come out and there's nothing there anymore it just doesn't it doesn't have enough security cover to for the deer to feel safe and, and confident there so they're gone it's more of like a, a late summer early fall thing so it's real important to recognize that and then capitalize on those spots 
you know, when they're, they're most effective. So I do have a handful of areas like that and I'm constantly adding some. So yeah, I'm, I'm zeroing in on those. Um, just this year, there's a, a there's a new area that, uh, looked like it could just, just going by experience, looked like it could be decent early. There's some, there's some, uh, like, uh, apple trees on there and they hold some water and I'm thinking it might be good thick cover. It could be a, a really good area for a mature deer early season. So there's another spot for me to kind of keep tabs on, but yeah. it, te- things tend to play out and you kind of, your focus tends to narrow naturally to like, okay, this deer is doing this, yep. you know, and he's, he's showing up or he's shown some reg- regularity or last year he was, you know, regular during this time of year. So it all kind of, you know, it, it all comes into play. You just you tend to narrow down. I'm not necessarily just because there's a big giant, you know, here in velvet that I'm just going to be ultra focused on that deer. I won't do that because, you know, there's 50, 50% chance that he might go somewhere else. Yeah. Like that, that buck that you helped me track, you know, that deer was never there early season. Yeah. You know, he never was. He was, in fact, I've, I've told you this, the, the play was to kill him late season, right? That's when he always came. And so I wasn't even after that deer. I was there after a big wide 10 point. And, um, for whatever reason, I mean, who knows, you know, call it luck, you know, fate, whatever he, he showed up, you know, early season. So, um, that was a heck of a buck too. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to bring him. I wanted to show really him. cool. Yeah. Uh, but you know, so you know, I tend to just, it, it usually ends up being like one or two bucks and it's Michigan. I mean, sometimes it's one, sometimes it's, I've had, I've had years where I've literally found like two shooters period. Yeah. And then other years where it's been like seven or eight, Yeah. you know, and it's just, it kind of depends on the year and, you know, if it's been a good growing season, you know, what, what deer have been killed, what haven't, you know, it's just, you know, like a few years ago, every deer that I had on camera that was three and a half uh, or older, which was, or that I had seen, which was a lot, there was a lot for Michigan. It was the most I ever seen. Every single one except one was verified killed. Wow. Yeah. So we went into that next season, like, okay, there's not going to be much around, yeah. you know, but then, you know, then there's years it's like, you know, you're, you're glassing and there's like, man, there's some good bucks there. And you, you know, big tracks here when I'm scouting and it's like, then you pull your card and there's a couple of shooters, you know, at this place and this place. And it's like, wow, there's a lot of nice deer around. Yeah. And they tend, you know, they tend falling off pressure increases here. They disappear. This deer gets poached. This deer gets killed. You know, you know, things happen and it, it ends up narrowing down, but you know, it just kind of depends, but usually that, that last week, I'm usually focused on like one, maybe two, two deer. Yeah. You know, what are you doing in those final days or weeks as far as preparing other stuff? So other than you found your buck or bucks that you're going to target that first night, do you do anything to prep your gear? Do you do anything to prep your, your mind? I don't know. Uh, any, any process stuff that's happening at home before the season actually begins? Um, I mean, the gear stuff is just kind of as I can do it throughout the year, like here and there. I don't, I don't necessarily designate a certain time for that. Um, you know, I try to get all my equipment quiet. I like a real reliable system. So like in my pack, you know, everything is always where, you know, has its own little pocket or station and it just, everything's where I need it to be. I don't want to be fumbling around with stuff. You know, what was it that you forgot on our Nebraska hunt? 
My rangefinder. Oh yeah, the range. That was it. <laughs> I forget. <laughs> Never done that before, <laughs> ever. Yeah. Yeah. Was, the system got messed up with the trip, and that came. It totally did. Bit you. <laughs> and it, you know, it was like I remember too. I remember gathering stuff out of the back of your car, and it was like. I had a bag over here, my 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 backpack over here, and I was like, "Where where, where is everything? Where is everything? <laughs> like this is completely messed up." Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And I I was wearing a, a bino harness, and I had my rangefinder clipped onto my bino harness, and I grabbed everything, hopped out of your truck, um, and didn't grab the bino harness, so I, I didn't have my binoculars or that, and and I started walking. And I, I get up that first hill, and I'm like, oh, you know, like grabbing my chest, and I turn around, and I see your car, like your truck going over the hill, and I'm like, Mark, you know? So it was just like, yeah, oh, I, I knew uh, nothing good was going to happen that night. Yeah. But, but sorry, back to what you are saying about your system. Being. Yeah, the equipment stuff, you know, again, just like with everything else, I'm trying to improve improve the system. I'm trying to find gear that's quieter, gear that's make, you know, makes things lighter, less bulky, makes me more effective in the woods. And, um, you know, uh, I, I, I like the system I have, so I, I guess I haven't been changing too much. You know, I used to use a lone wolf and sticks, which is great. I still have them. It's a, it's a really nice, like mobile type setup, which, you know, a lot of my hunting is, and, you know, I have gravitated more towards like the tree saddle. Um, I had one a long time ago, a trophy line, used it for two seasons, killed deer out of it. No problem. It just wasn't real comfortable for me. And when I started having my back issues and stuff, I just got away from it. It just wasn't comfortable. I felt fidgety. There was one hunt in Ohio that I was like, I'm, I, I was going to sit till noon. I was, I had till noon to hunt. I was going to sit till noon. It was like November 4th. And it got to 10 o'clock and I couldn't stand the pain anymore wow. in my hips. And I got down and I was like, I can't, yeah, I can't, yeah. I can't risk not sitting 10 to 12 during the rut when I have that time available. Mm-hmm. So then I went back to the tree stand, which, you know, definitely wasn't comfortable, but at least I could stand, sit, stand, sit, just kind of keep things loose. And then, um, you know, and then, uh, you know, in the past couple of years, all these, you know, new saddles have come out and they're so much better than what they were yeah you know and i was able to try out one that i really liked you know so light um no bulk to it and they came out with a little back band so i'm able to find really good comfort in it too now so that i kind of got into that like mid last season and then i used that exclusively and then that's going to be my go-to this year too just it's they're, they've made just so much improvements on it. So that's a big gear change, but everything else is just about getting it quiet. Um, you know, um, you know, I'm happy with like, you know, my clothes and, and boots and that sort of thing. Like sometimes I'll try like new boots and that sort of thing, but I don't, I don't spend a whole lot of energy on that. Like everything I have is like pretty freaking quiet. And what I like about, you know, having quiet stuff and like the saddle with less bulk and everything, it's like, I love, I like that I can go into the woods, run and gun in a new area and I'm perfectly capable and, and, uh, ready to climb up a tree and hunt 25 feet, or I can hunker down on the ground and I don't have a a stand or anything noisy to worry about. And if I see a a buck bedded with a doe out there, I can, 
I can crawl and stalk with it. I mean, I have everything I need to do that. Like if I had a climbing tree stand or a stand with sticks that weighs 24 pounds, you know what I mean? I, I don't know. I just, it just really fits my style. So that's really been the only big gear change, but I'm, I'm always trying to like, just kind of dial things in and, and just get things quieter, eliminate anything that could go wrong and just have everything really reliable. Like if I want my handsaw, boom, I know right where it's at. If I want, you know, my bottle of water, boom, I know where it's at. If I want my wind checker, boom, I know it's in this pocket. Like I don't want to be like, you know, digging around in my, you know, cause an extra moving up in the tree stand. I want everything to be right where I need it. Even like the way I hang my bow and everything is just so dialed in. It's always the same. You know what I mean? Yep. I want everything the same. This goes right back to what we talked about in a lot of these other episodes. It's like this, the power and like having these set routines and habits because it takes, it it keeps you from having to spend precious energy on all these things that just have to get done and get done and done and done. If you have a system in place, that frees your mind up to focus on the stuff that you really need to focus on, like how to adapt to the changing variables or something brand new happens you got to figure out where's the buck going to be or how's my plan going to change or where should i be hunting that kind of stuff is what your brain power should be focused on versus 20 different little decisions about where to hang my bow and what's going to be in my backpack and where's my gear going to be in the morning when i wake up to go to the truck like all having all those things lined out the way you do i think is just a perfect way to eliminate error find those little inches Mm -hmm. let you spend your energy and time on the big stuff that you know that you have that skill to do and you've now you got the mental space to do it too yeah there was somebody i don't remember who it was but i don't know if i read it in a book or online or something but it was something that i read a few years ago and it said something like would you have a choice to to choose the difficult thing or the easy thing always choose the difficult thing so i i always try to do that now so like if there's a you know, if there's a tree stand that's a mile away or this one here that's 400 yards away, I'm going to choose the one that's a mile away. Hmm. Or, you know, like you said, you wake up in the morning and you don't feel like going. Like I have those morning to, mornings too. I usually get up and go to the gym. I actually do enjoy doing that. But, like, sometimes you just don't feel like doing it. But then I'll, like, okay, I don't feel like doing it. I'm doing it. Yeah. And now it's just, like. Now it's just, it, I always just choose the harder thing. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So now it's like, it's just kind of the way I live. Um, I mean, I'm sure I choose the easiest thing sometimes, but, <laughs> you know, I guess when it comes to this type of stuff and like, you know, being the best I can be in improving and hunting and, and trying to stay in shape and, and anything like that, it's just like, okay, if it's, if it's the harder thing, that's what I want to do. It's usually the best choice. It's just yeah. hard to do it. Yeah. 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 What? And this is where I want to leave things. What is going through your mind the last night before hunting season opens? Your first hunt's in the morning. You're laying in bed at night. Lights are off. It's quiet. What are the final things that you're thinking about before the hunting season begins? Um, usually, that's a pretty uh, calm and relaxed time for me because I know that I've done everything I could have done to be prepared. Um, there's usually a deer that, you know, I'm onto that I have fairly high confidence in, in, in having a a decent hunt the next day. Um, it's usually a very peaceful time for me. Um, one thing I do, not just that day, I actually do this every night unless I just kind of fall asleep before I do it. It's kind of, 
I started doing this when I, um, after I kind of got through the target panic thing, but I, before I go to bed, I'll go through one scenario. I'll go through, um, a deer that I've shot a deer that I haven't or that I shot at and screwed up and then a completely made up one. And I go, I close my eyes and I visualize this encounter. So I'll, I'll close my eyes and I'll visualize a deer that I shot that comes in exactly what he's doing, you know, exactly how he did it. And I'll come to full draw and I'll settle the pin and I'll let it flow. And I'll just focus on executing the shot and making that perfect shot and seeing that arrow, you know, disappear right where I want it to hit. So I'll relive those moments that were successful. And then I'll do the same thing with one that I screwed up on, one that I missed, one that I hit and wounded, you know, those ones that really kind of eat at you. So I'll replay that exactly how it played out and I'll make that perfect shot again, right behind the shoulder and see that arrow disappear. And then I'll just make up a new one, a brand new one. Um, whether it's, you know, an elk, an antelope, a whitetail, whatever, and just, and just visualize that. And I've been doing that now for, I don't know, like eight or nine years. And I try to do that every night, but, um, usually like, you know, before the hunting season, um, you know, that night before is this like a, it's kind of like a <sighs> kind of rest peaceful. Uh, I feel like I'm prepared. Um, but at the same time, um, excited and you know it's it's now that i think about it it's actually it's kind of a it's a peaceful feeling but it's also a bit of an anxious feeling because i know the next few months are going to be a lot of commitment a lot of hard work a lot of hours in the stand it's like a it's like a nervous like anxious kind of excitement but I feel very peaceful and content of my preparation. preparation if that yeah. makes sense. It does. Okay. Absolutely makes sense. I can yeah. relate to that. Yeah. And I feel like listening to all this, you know, you prepare like a pro. Like there's 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 a there's a book, and I haven't read the book, but I read the like the prequel to this book, and I've read a lot of things from this person. And he he talks about going pro with something. How there's a difference between having a hobby versus taking something so serious as if you were a professional at it, even if you're not really a professional. Yeah. But when you make decisions and when you prepare and when you put the heart and soul and commitment into something as if it was what you made your living from, that's how people really excel at something. And maybe, you know, just could be something you're really excited and passionate about and you want to excel in it. So you make those pro decisions. And I think the types of decisions you're making, choosing to do the hard things, choosing to be preparing all throughout the year, focusing on the minutia, focusing on the little steps, quantifying how to get better things. I think that's how you prep like a pro. And I think it shows obviously with your results. Um, so for people out there who want to get better at hunting or whatever, they don't necessarily need to do all the things like you do, right? Like you said, like it works for you. It might yeah. not be for everybody, but I think everyone can learn from you with the process you take, the level of attention you pay to the different steps in that process. I think that's a really big takeaway. Um, and it's helpful for me and, and, and encur- encouraging to me. Well, not encouraging. Makes me feel lazy, but it's inspiring me to do better than I do because I feel like I do a whole hell of a lot. <laughs> but there's room to get better. And uh, it's good to hear from people that can that can push you. And I think uh, you set an example that can push us. So so thanks for sharing that, man. Yeah, there, I, there's always room to get better for everybody. And, uh, you know, the worst thing, like what I hate seeing too is like guys that are successful, 
you know, anything, but let's just kind of focus on deer hunting guys that, you know, have had years and years of success that kind of get stuck in their ways Mm -hmm. and you could tell they're not getting better. And in fact, they sometimes, sometimes they see other guys that are having success and they like to almost like put those guys down because they do it differently. And, um, man, I don't know. That's just really disheartening to see that, you know, guys that have like really reached this high level of something that they've, you know, dedicated, you know, their lifetime to only to put down a guy that's equally successful that just does it a little bit different way. I just, it, I don't get it. Um, and, and my goal is just to, I just want to continue to learn. I don't want, I don't want the, the greatest wall of all time. I don't want, you know, a bigger buck than you or a bigger buck than my buddies or anybody else. I just, I want to continue learning and I want to get the better. It's more of like a, like a competition with myself. Yeah. You know, I want to, I want to, I just want to, I can't, I don't, I don't know. I would never feel right. Just being like, okay, you know what? I'm pretty decent at this. We're just going to kind of level it out mm-hmm. and, and go from there and just kind of, you know, kill some nice deer every year. I, I don't know. It's just, I think some people's minds are, are made different that they just, and it probably has something to do with what you're passionate about and, and yep. what you love. And, and for me and you, this is certainly it. So yep. it's just like, we have that, that kind of drive to improve, but I, I feel like there's something you can learn from everybody. Like I've learned from you and I've learned from some of these guys I talk about that have had years and years of success. I don't ever want to lose that. Like I, you can learn from the guy that killed a big buck right down the road. Yeah. I always want to hear that story from the guy that didn't know what he was doing right? because you're going to learn something from it. Yeah. You know, and I always take the time to sit down and, and talk to those guys and there's always bits and pieces you can, you know, you can take from those that you can, you know, incorporate into your own knowledge and, uh, you know, I think can really help you. I think you are spot on with that one. And, um, we've talked for a long time. I can't believe how long we talked. There was, there was a lot of good stuff in there. So we're going to wrap it up. Um, we'll have to get, get you back on here again. I know we've got plans to do that. And, um, I know we've been talking about some plans. Maybe we can try to do a hunt again this fall. Yeah. That'd be I good. think we should. Me All right. Too. Let's talk again soon. All right. And that's going to do it. Hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, if you enjoy what Andy had to say, he has a lot more to share. And he's been a guest on the podcast several different times over the past few years. So go back through the Wired Hunt podcast archives. Look up Andy May. He's a good friend, a really, really good deer hunter, and someone who I think has a particular knack for sharing what he does and how he does it in a way that um, that can help people and that I think is is not intimidating. It's easily consumed, uh, which is which is why I've learned so much from him too. So take a look at those other episodes. Enjoy them. Enjoy your weekend. Enjoy your day. And uh, as we've been talking about, there's lots to be doing. So hopefully you're out there in the field practicing with your bow or hanging tree stands or planting food plots or doing something to get ready for hunting season because before you know it, it's going to be here. So until then, stay wired to hunt i'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill meat from those organs are among the most nutrient rich foods on the planet you can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.
Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.